Hey everyone, welcome to the MJL. I'm your host, Mike Lee, and I interview my everyday friends who have hidden talents beyond their regular nine to five day job. Today I have Andy Wong, former colleague of mine from Jam City, but more importantly, uh, he is the wonder wall of wordplay, a young king in comedy, and puts the hum in humwa. Welcome to the pod, Andy. <laughs> I think I have some competition with wordplay with you. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to like, I one, I learned from the best, clearly. And also, yeah. you know, the time that we did work together, uh, everything, we always look forward to your jokes, right? No matter what. Aww. And, you know, funny thing is I was talking to uh, a former roommate of mine who also works at Jam City. And he was saying, uh, you know, we have like those like, uh like game all hands sort of meetings right where like apparently like you're presenting some you know data and stuff like that and he's like yeah like you know andy always throws that guy andy always throws in a joke and you know he makes you know uh josh who's like the ceo uh or ceo i forgot which one and i should know um but he makes <laughs> him laugh every single time right and i thought that was hilarious it was just like everybody knows who you are just based off your jokes and that you make people laugh even though they've never oh. met you before. Oh, thank you. Those, those are the kindest words you can say to like a comedian. <laughs> and that's that's not for me, right? That's just from like, you know, my friend who I don't even actually really talk to like that much, you know, uh, overall. And he's telling me like, oh yeah, that dude, Andy, right? Like the one who tells jokes all the time. Oh, that's awesome. Like, honestly, like if this is something I experience sometimes, like very rarely, Someone on stage would be like, oh, you're cute. But I'm like, but am I funny? <laughs> That's what I really want to know. <laughs> it's like, oh, no. <laughs> They're just hitting on me now for the wrong reasons. <laughs> oh, man. I, I forgot. I was, I think I might have been listening to a comedian about, uh, you know, being a comedian. And or maybe it was being a comedian, being a woman, right? And it was just like, there was no, I think it's Ali Wong. I think it was when one of her skits, right? She was saying like, yeah, you know, you think, you know, being a male comedian, right? Like you get all these ladies that, you know, could try to come up and you, but when you're a fe like as a female comedian, where's that other side of the spectrum? Like it doesn't necessarily, <laughs> you know, always come to yeah, fruition. It translate. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't want the creepy guy hitting on you afterwards as a female comedian. <laughs> exactly. Maybe if they were like, uh, you know, a couple, a couple drinks in, right. Like that's just a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, I have seen that happen while they're on stage, and it is very uncomfortable for everyone. Like, oh man, that's awkward. Like, dude, audience members hitting on like female comedians. Like, oh come on, <laughs> like, this is gross. Right. This is gross. I mean, you know, you get a whole variety of people. You know, I imagine at these comedy shows that are there, you know, to absorb some laughs, right? And you know, for there to kind of, you know, relieve themselves from kind of everyday life. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. That's like how I originally thought about bringing that into the office too. Because so I'm glad that your your friend and, and colleague yeah. <laughs> was able to appreciate that. Because honestly, what, one of the ways I actually got into comedy was through our work. So our work had this basically career development budget. And I used that for a comedy class, which is great. And I, I think... The ROI was positive on that <laughs> from what I was able to bring to the team. And I, yeah, I, I honestly, it's it's one of the best experiences that I've had. Um, I, I got into the game pretty late. Like when I, I want to say when I was like 27. Yeah, 27 I got in. Um, so a lot of comedians, you know, they get in when they're younger, like 18, early 20s. 
Um, but I think the advantage of going into comedy a bit later in life is you have things to talk about because you have a lot of lived experience. Like when you're like early 20s, late teens, you have a lot of angst. But when you're when you've lived a little, you, you you've lived, you know, <laughs> you, have, you have shit to talk about. That makes sense. Like, was it something that, you know, was just a talent that you honed, right, by taking these classes? Or was it more like, maybe you had a sense of humor on the side, but it wasn't as refined? Or, you know, you mentioned you didn't necessarily have as much potentially lived experience, right, uh, you know, before you were taking the class. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about, you know, how maybe the comedy part, whether that was something that you grew up with, uh, maybe not honed perfectly, uh, but, you know, were there seedlings of interest, right, uh, that eventually uh, kind of led to that? Yeah, I honestly, I never thought about doing stand-up comedy per se, like as myself. I, I always enjoyed the medium. Uh, one of the th early ways I kind of got into it was actually through my family. My family is a very, uh, Cantonese traditional family if it wasn't basically like these Cantonese dramas out of Hong Kong, the other thing that we did was we watched this um, Cantonese stand-up. Um, his name is, um, I believe it's uh, Wong Jiwa in Cantonese, but he is really funny. And I think he's the only Cantonese stand-up. A lot of other folks in the entertainment, dis uh, entertainment district, <laughs> entertainment industry, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, they, they can be a district do it at like award yeah. shows. Yeah, yeah, they, they kind of live in an old, yeah. old district. I mean, L.A. right is kind of one of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, district. I would just imagine like you know, a district like Hong Kong, right? Like kind of in the middle, <laughs> like between you know the handover and not the handover. So like you could have your, you can have you know one foot in, one foot out. It's totally fine. Yeah, um, they, they'll they'll do a lot of bits during award shows. That's kind of like their thing, but no one had like a specific show just to do stand-up. And it's interesting. So in, in like Cantonese entertainment culture, a lot of singers will do funny comedy bits in between their songs and it's expected, which is really interesting. So I think that's kind of how I ingested and that was how I ingested it through my family. It's just like, for me, it was like, it was a safe space. The family can laugh together. Even if it's dirty jokes, they'll just like explain it to us. <laughs> which that's, I was like, okay, that's pretty cool, funny. Yeah, They're like this is why this is funny. And I was like, okay, that sounds gross, but okay. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of how I got into the medium of it. And then I really got into the early Dave Chappelle's and then the English stand-up. And um, interestingly enough, so my daytime job, what I've done for the majority of my career is digital advertising. And lo and behold, I was at my office one day scrolling through Instagram and I got a digital ad <laughs> on Instagram that was like stand-up course at Second City near you. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And as the world's worst marketer, I fall for marketing tricks. To that, is, that is not so. the world's worst marketer. I even click on ads to get served to me, right, as well as a marketer, just because I'm curious what the page that I'm going to is actually going to lead to. And like, mm. I want to see how it connect, the ad actually connects uh, to the page. So that's what I'm particularly interested in when I click on an ad. But anyways, I digress. No, that, that, that's, a, that's the right reason, I think, <laughs> as a marketer to do it. I'm just easily influenced. <laughs> so I, I saw that ad and it stuck around in my head and then I saw it again. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to see if I can do it 
um, through my professional development. And I could. And that's how I started. It was a second city course in Toronto. Um, it was super fun. It was it was interesting, though, too, because a lot of famous comedians, you hear their stories and they they come from a place of of extreme humbleness, right, where they they hone their craft through just doing the thing. They go out on an open mic one day, they, they try it, they give it a shot, they love it, they find a mentor and they, they get really good. With Second City stand-up classes, because you're, you're paying pretty hefty amount, right? It's, it's not like something like a normal person would shell out a lot of money to do. Um, you meet a lot of these very educated professionals who can basically afford it, which is really interesting. So I kind of like got an introduction to like, a hoity-toity version. Got it. Of so you like went, you went through like the boot camp, right? Like the equivalent of like a tech boot camp, but for comedy, where it's like, oh, hey, like you know, well, you got to pay like thirteen k up front, right? I'm, I'm just you know uh, exaggerating. Thirteen k up front, <laughs> right? To get like you know, you graduated from Second City, you know, you know, comedy, you know, uh, comedy school. Or if it's like, well, we'll fund you, but if you, every stand-up gig that you do, we want you know two percent of your your earnings or some something like that, like income <laughs> share agreement <laughs> <laughs> to support to support the art. If if they wanted an income share agreement, I I would be like, this is a great program because here in Canada, you do not get paid well for comedy, if at all. <laughs> it's that's kind of the norm at least in the toronto scene that i've been in uh <laughs> i think the most i've been paid has been like 50 dollars for like a 10 minute set and i was like laughing to the ooh, bank i was ooh. like i got paid 50 dollars. but did you make it up with tips uh no i made it up with feedback though so i, I refined my set okay okay <laughs> for, for performing but uh yeah that that was um basically kind of the benchmark and i i realized then afterwards that was like the high benchmark because afterwards i started getting paid for shows but it was like 15 20 here and there uh and then i realized if you want to basically make a living doing comedy in toronto you have to be an international star and this has to be like a stop for you <laughs> like okay, toronto okay. is like a tour destination of like 10 different cities then you're making money in toronto but the question is right like if there are comedians that do stop by on tour, right? Do you get to be one of many potential people that gets to open for, you know, uh, a comedian at their show? That's a really good question. I think um, from my understanding of it is you have to have a really good agent <laughs> and uh, then they can try to basically get, get the in for you. If you're like kind of the amateur scene, uh, such as myself and you making your way, uh, in that case, you're basically using different platforms to make a name of yourself so that people know who you are. It's interesting. Before, um, I had a lot of friends who were in the visual arts, and they always talked about like exposure dollars. <laughs> Have you ever hated that? And I understand it now. And thank God, like I, I understand it having like a day job. It's it's funny because a lot of like new comedians yeah they'll be like oh you've been doing this for a while what's your biggest advice and i'm like don't quit your day job <laughs> that's, that's literally my, like don't do it you should you should tell people to use your day job as your exposure dollar uh mechanism <laughs> right because they'll probably get more exposure there working at a company and you just have to do stand-up gigs in front of your your colleagues 
<laughs> That's what I did to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You tested out all the jokes uh, on us. I mean, granted, some of them were game-related jokes, um, which were very contextual. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which helps, though, because I, I did run a game, like a video game-specific themed comedy show, which is... I actually, I thought that was one of the best ways that I found to get into the scene and actually give yourself a platform. So I think some old comedians get a little flack because they do the old and tested way. They're like, the only way to get better is to go out and do it. Yeah. You got to do a lot of it. If no one's giving you stage time, get your own stage time. And a lot of like new comedians are like, oh, come on, man. Like you shouldn't expect that. But like, I think there's like, there's a hint of truth in that, right? Like you only get better at doing the thing. But don't get conflated with busyness for productivity, right? So some people hear that and like I'll see your comedians go out and do like four or five open mics a night. And I'm like with them maybe two or three, but they haven't changed their set those four or five times, right? They're doing the same set five times and then they think maybe at the end of the night, oh, I think I got better. I'm like, no, you did the same shitty set five times. <laughs> the question really is whether it. their delivery was i mean there are probably some minor you know improvements whether their actual delivery got better right or uh that's only or i guess that's the only way i could think about how you would improve it if your set's the same all the time is just your delivery of it yeah that that would be a delivery thing but also to be fair it shouldn't always be the same every time like you should be changing your wording yeah you should maybe have one or two punchlines if you're trying to basically do like an A-B test of how good a joke lands. Um, Fair. If, if you're just doing, yeah, if you're just doing the A version five times in a row and think that helps you somehow, like, maybe it helps you with, like, recovering from disaster. <laughs> like, from, like, an ego standpoint, you're like, you, yeah. you build callous. But... I guess it's different if, like, oh you're God. doing that joke in one place and then you're doing the same joke in another place. Like, That's also then it's, true. It's yeah, fresh, there is... right? Yeah, I would say that there's something to that too, right? Because maybe that wasn't your audience. Maybe this is, the next one's your audience. But, you know, if you could, you do it five times in front of five different audiences and you you bomb that joke five times, that's probably a bad joke. <laughs> I was like, you're not improving. You just confirmed five times. That was bad. So something that was interesting is I went to a Nigel Ung uh, comedy show. He was in Ooh. San Francisco. Um, so obviously he's his persona is you know uncle roger you know hiya walk fried rice uh fried rice fuck boy right like that's kind of his like <laughs> shtick and so the interesting thing that he did was um at a show he came out as you know in his uncle roger shtick right and basically used that um to gather uh joke fodder right like he would use this like hey where are you from like oh that person's maybe from taiwan or china you know he talked about like oh like you're from the philippines is this your dad did he beat you kind of thing right like he basically <laughs> took all these like you know tropes right in the beginnings you know of his uh set uh and then when he came back or basically gathered information and then he came back out right in his non-uncle roger set so his regular nigel Ong set and basically leveraged all of those conversations, you know, he had before to kind of intersperse and make it a little bit more uh, dynamic, which is something I really appreciated because, you know, I really wasn't following his like Instagram page, like very, uh, very detailedly, <laughs> but I was like, oh, wait, all these jokes that he was saying, right, they were, you know, from, you know, already posted online, right, but it's just that now he's, you know, uh, executing them in person. 
So I thought that was pretty funny, but he leveraged the tech crowd in San Francisco. So he'd be like, oh, like, you know, someone was a, a founder of a AI company for, I don't know, it was like men's clothing. And it was just like, you know, can you help this man, you know, dress better with your AI, you know, like uh, you know, <laughs> software or just like, you know, you're saying like, oh, you know, who's your co-founder? Are they Malaysian? Right. They work hard. That's why you're here. Right. Like it's stuff like that. <laughs> right. But it's just like he's leveraging his background and obviously he's Malaysian like uh, as well. So I think it seems like he was just leveraging his background, leveraging the crowd. Um, whether it's their ethnicity or the types of jobs they do, right? And kind of just playing everyone off of each other, uh, maybe in kind of the Asian comedy kind of way where it's just like, oh, you're Chinese, oh, you're Taiwan, you know, you're Taiwanese, um, and saying like, well, you didn't have a virus named after you, so are you a legitimate country, right, kind of thing. So, so <laughs> I mean, it was, it was fun. It was like, it's funny, you know, obviously comedians will be slightly offensive, right? Um, but there's the irony that we're all sort of laughing at. Yeah, and I, I think I, you touched upon something I think is is really important, right? Because I think the offensiveness in the irony is a lot of what comedians try to use to get folks to think about the, the, the you know, that idea. Yeah. Right? It's, it's like there's a reason you're laughing at it, and there's a reason why we think it's funny. Whereas, you know, you could take it the other way and be like, I'm offended, period, <laughs> which is, I, I, and I, I understand that too, for the most part, but it's almost like, you know, if it's like, I, I, I know there are folks who think that comedians have a responsibility to do some deeper critique on society, which I think is fair. And I, I think with those kind of jokes, I think those are what they're trying to do, which is a lot more meaningful than what I think an actual's primary responsibility is. And that's to make you laugh, right? Like, I, like for all the, the talk about oh, what the responsibility of a comedian is and, and the high ground and, and the morality behind it, at the end of the day, primary responsibility is to make you laugh, right? The secondary is great. It's almost like, I want to say, if you bought a book for entertainment, the book is supposed to entertain you. Right. <laughs> I think that is its, it is primary, you know, raison d'etre. But if you buy a book and it entertains you and makes you think, then I think that's a higher level of literature. And I think that's kind of the same way we should like look at comedy. I, can, uh, my recent thinking about it. I think even at the, if you want to call it the, the lowest levels of comedy, even with slapstick, right? Or, you know, sort of high class humor, they all ha obviously have some irony to it, right? And they all make you think, right? It does. I think it could be lowbrow, you know, slapstick, high class comedy. Like I think all of it is all great comedy, no matter what genre it is, will kind of make you think about it, right? And reflect upon, you know, different people's sort of situations or you know whatever whatever the the setting may be. I think you're right in that you know there's always going to be a irony to it, but I think it depends on the audience for them to actually interpret it to act for them to actually feel some attachment to it. Um, Cause that's what the thing that stings the most is the thing that like makes it the most funny and the most entertaining. Yeah. It's, it's that double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah. Dang, man. Yeah. You got to come up to my show so I get less slack. <laughs> <laughs> 
You should just like, honestly, just like in the background, just have like a big QR code and just be like, all right, pictures allowed, right? But really it's just a link to your Venmo and just like, you, just get, you get people to just like, you know, send you money. It's like, you like a joke, right? Like while you're taking a picture, right? Like, you know, just, just add a little bit more, you know, add a, add a couple more dollars here, right? Like. That's get, amazing. That's get, a great idea. Get paid, get paid in real time. <laughs> That's that's actually I think a great idea to be honest. <laughs> so one thing I did do because I have the uh, the privilege of having basically a, a pretty good full time day job uh, is I so I produced my own comedy show and part of that was a little bit of the old school thinking right it was like I I was basically trying to get more stage time. Some comedians in Toronto would book me on their shows, but I wanted like basic guaranteed stage time at least once a month for myself. Um, so I basically emailed one of the big three comedy clubs here in Toronto. I was like, look, I want to put together a video game themed comedy show. Um, I, I work in the industry. I know there's a crowd for it. I, I know the community. And that was kind of my in. And then now I have basically a monthly show at the Toronto Comedy Bar and Bloor, which is one of our bigger ones. And it, I, I think the ease of which I did it shocked me in okay. that more people don't do it. Which, which is something I found interesting because one thing comedians really value is stage time. Stage time is one of those things that like, I want to say money can't buy, but I, I mean, it kind of can, but usually you don't want right, to right. like pay in to perform. Uh, but yeah, to, to be able to basically produce a show to guarantee yourself a set amount of stage time, I think is an amazing thing. And I think in like, a lot of people's minds is like one step above what they think they're capable. They're like, oh, I got to be a somebody to be able to produce a show. And what I realized was like, as a working professional, and nah, I mean, worst case scenario, you try and they say, no, not yet. And you're like, ah, okay, I'll come back when you're ready. But the amount of people who don't take that shot, but go out at night and put their ego on the line, <laughs> their self-esteem on the line over and over again. I'm like, if you can do that, <laughs> You can write an email. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like the barrier to entry is so low. And I, and I think that's true of just performing comedy as well, right? The barrier to entry is so low. Like you can go up to any open mic and do a five-minute set that you put together. But it's like who has the guts to try to do it? And I realize it's like even with the people who have the guts to put themselves out performing in front of a crowd may not have the courage to to try something like produce their own show because that that level of rejection may be even more you know meaningful than the rejection of like a 10 20 person audience and that that i think blows my mind so what you're saying is you don't have enough competition and you need more right just because you <laughs> clearly right like it's just there's just not enough comedians right to you know take over <laughs> toronto <laughs> i i think there's plenty enough but I, I would love to see them try because the thing is, it, and it's interesting because there's a weird power dynamic when you're a producer because then now comedians who really want stage time go, hey man, what's a guy got to do to get on, on your show? And I'm like, you, you just message me like that <laughs> and maybe show me a clip of your stuff. If I, have, I don't know you, if I know you and I know your stuff, I'll probably try to you know, put you on the show if I like it. And I'm like, in order to send that message, you might as well give your own shot and some of these folks who are messaging and reaching out to me 
I know for a fact they're better comedians than me because <laughs> I've been to their shows. I go to shows because they're on it. And I'm like, holy smokes. Like if you just shot your own shot and basically did your own show, I would be there. I would be on the other side of this message. <laughs> like, like, and I would like encourage anyone who's trying to get into the comedy scene, shoot that shot because you're basically shooting that shot based any night you're going out to open mic. And there's, there's nothing to lose. You know, that one thing that you could try, um, so actually one of my friends uh, in the Bay Area, he's volunteering um, for this, uh, for the Berkeley Humane Society, and he's partnering um, with a brewery. And this brewery oh. partners with, uh, but it's a it's a couple breweries that partner with like uh, the Humane Society. Basically, it's like an animal adoption uh, center. And they basically are having all you can drink for three hours uh and obviously there will be dogs there uh, as well like i think the cost is like 95 us dollars right for a three hour all you can drink but it has you know uh, a bunch of different breweries and stuff like that there so i was just thinking like wow andy you could just make the comedy version of it right basically all you can drink but you have you know comedic sets like going out through all the whole three hour period so one you either fill out you know, uh, a bar or uh, a brewery or some specific location, you get the brewers to come, right? And you know, when you go to a comedy club, they ask you like, hey, you need to pay for, you know, X amount of drinks, right? Because, you know, the club's got to, <laughs> the club's got to make their money back somehow. <laughs> exactly, and so yeah. maybe that's a, that's a nice idea where you just, you know, say like, all right, everyone who wants to shoot their shot, right? Like, here's the form, right? Like, basically you get the supply of your comedians and then you just ask like, Hey, like, you know, this is for a good cause, whether it's, you know, like you're supporting local comedians, but um, you can also have, you know, brewers there as well for like an all you can drink kind of thing. Yeah. I love that idea. Actually, that, that's a really good idea. Yeah. That, that, and if you do that across some kind of time, then you can put together your own festival, which I, I think once again, sounds like a lofty thing, but the barrier to entry is just who is willing to help you and are you willing to put yourself out there to do it? Yeah, so, so that's, yeah, my, that's a great idea. That's my, that's my hot take for the comedic version of that. Yeah, dude, I might try that in Toronto. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is, uh, is, uh, so I know in Canada, right, like the, you know, there's restrictions to drinking, right? Or in terms of like accessing alcohol, like does that apply to to brewers as well uh, like out there like i don't know how drinking uh, and like the comedy scene you know kind of intermingle given that there's you know restrictions and stuff like that uh not, not well in ontario you just can't drink outside uh okay okay for for some reason or another that that's something our government has said has, is somehow morally reprehensible <laughs> is being seen publicly intoxicated and intoxicated yourself which i mean I guess, but sure. <laughs> as long as you're in an inside venue, it's all it's fair game. As okay. long as you're like of, of drinking age. Got it. I would just. Think... I would say. Go ahead. So. Yeah, uh, I would say one thing. Um, our Canadian government doesn't do too well outside of uh, Quebec, which is French Canada, which they actually do well. Is um, they do not recognize comedy as a specific type of art, so we don't get art funding per se which is something I think the States does a lot better because in Canada, if you want to apply um, for any kind of art grant or funding to do comedy specifically, it's not actually a recognized art. So you don't have that kind of backing that other arts, you get visual arts, you have theater arts, 
dancing arts, those are all recognized. Comedy or comedic arts is not a supported category. So we kind of have to try to pull ourselves under like performing arts. But it, it's hard to do that because now, you know, the, the funding and, and government support that you get is basically hyper competitive against this already very competitive category. Um, so that's one thing the Canadian government could do a bit better to support struggling comedians. So what you're saying is the Canadian government is trying to uh, indirectly, you know, cancel out comedians from criticizing the government because uh, they're not funding comedians directly. And, and, you know, instead of, you know, saying like, hey, we're going to pull an authoritarian or like a censorship type move, we're just going to cut the funding, you know, to uh, comedic arts. And that's what you're saying, right? Uh, you know what? I'm going to say that's up for interpretation. <laughs> I know our prime minister's had a lot of trucks to deal with, so maybe it's just down to his priority list. It was funny because yesterday uh, I was watching the White House Correspondents uh, Dinner. I don't know if you had seen that yet with Trevor Noah. So he's basically, oh, nice. um, yeah, he's just basically talking to a bunch of, uh, and they do this obviously, I think it's like, is it every year? I almost want to say it's either every year or once a, I don't know, once a term or something like that. Uh, but they typically they have like a comedian uh, at the White House dinner and there's a bunch of press, celebrities, um, the White House staff and stuff like that. And one of the things he was saying is like, you know, thank God, you know, you can be a comedian in, you know, the West, right? Like that it's a legitimate, you know, profession and that you can criticize, you know, someone, a politician openly, right? And not have to worry about, you know, disappearing the next day. Uh, so <laughs> I feel like that's, that's one area where, you know, being a comedian in the West, right. Is, um, is definitely much more elevated than probably anywhere else in the world, because you don't have to worry about necessarily, it's a different kind of cancel. Let's just say that it's like you get X'd out <laughs> by the government and not by, you know, the people. Yes. Yes. That, that's, I feel you on that. Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. That's that's something that I think, yeah, that is a huge privilege that we enjoy here in the West is being able to do that kind of political satire and humor. Um, it's, it's interesting. There are some folks that I hear, you know, across seas who do comedy and all their comedy apparently from, you know, from what I hear and, and folks that are really into it sound very similar because there's only certain topics, you know, won't get you disappeared, which is mind-boggling to me right they're like family dynamics what's yeah. up with that <laughs> but i mean like, you can cut that two thousand different ways but at some point you might want to say something's a bit more meaningful i think it's just like comedy in asia is i wouldn't i would say definitely not political because one you're definitely going to disappear um it's <laughs> obviously it's a much more authoritarian you know type of culture right as well like you're not supposed to disrespect your elders and things like that um so i think that kind of like trickles down as well but the type of comedy is much more nuanced uh in terms of how they make fun of different people uh, or different types of events and it's not it's not straight up slander right like i mean obviously with asian languages it's never ever really direct Right. It's always like kind of a beat around the bush, you know, kind of way where 
you kind of have to read the room, right, to really understand it. It's much more, you could say it's much more elevated, high class, you know, sort of humor <laughs> that requires a lot more depth and understanding because, you know, you probably would disappear or get canceled if you just said it out directly or if it was like too slapstick. Um, <laughs> there, it, I think it's just, yeah, it's just way more nuanced, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, and that that is something I, I definitely feel, especially when I write comedy. I think that's something that was something that I had to get over quite a bit to adopt to more I think Western style comedy. Because for myself, I I come from like a very high context um, Asian background as well. Like my mom's like a Chinese Vietnamese refugee, my dad's um, Cantonese uh, immigrant from Hong Kong, and like yeah, exactly what you're saying. There's it's very high context, right? Like. You, you can say a thing, but the actual thing being said is like very two layers deep and you basically have to interpret that. Um, and for me, well, what I thought was funny, buried one layer deep, some of my friends were like, I don't get it. You got to spell that out for me. And I was like, well, isn't it obvious? And they're like, well, when you explain it, it's obvious. Right. <laughs> like, when you're like doing, I, I think, stand up in, in the Western world, it, it's got to hit right away. And they got to understand at that surface level. And if they understand at one level, deep level, it'll be like that, like, it's almost like that, like, second laugh you get. You go, ha, right, oh, right. wait, <laughs> that's like That's like the extra zinger. When you hear people say, ooh, right? Like, that's when yeah. you know, like, oh, like, that one cut deep. Because it goes a couple <laughs> yeah. levels deeper. I, I think some comedians do it well. I, I was uh, watching Ronnie Chang's last, the latest special. Yeah, the was it the um, speakeasy one? The speakeasy one, yes. When, the one where he tosses and the water at someone, it. like he just picks up someone's <laughs> water and tosses it uh, inadvertently, yeah, right? Like as part of his act. Yeah, that I he had a few jokes in there that cuts two layers deep. But if like, as I even as like, because I'm very Westernized myself now, as you know, my Canadian side of watching that, I'm like, huh, that was a funny joke. But then I was like. Oh wait, no! I see what he's doing there. <laughs> like the second level, like, ah, I I think those are really cool. Um, it does suck though when like I think you do one of those, but the surface level doesn't hit. But then mm. you think about it later, and you're like, oh, that's what they were saying. But then that moment has passed. So it's do you, for, do you for the think, comedian on stage. Okay. Do you think that yeah, it's, it's because they're and something I've noticed as I've watched more like Netflix, you know, comedy shows and stuff like that. Um, is that they do a lot of story buildup, right? It's like when you're going to, you know, when these big comedians, when they're doing a, uh, a comedy bit, right? Like it's all narrative driven. Like you're actually just telling a comedic story throughout the whole thing versus like, all right, I'm going to pull out, you know, my note cards and, you know, just try out this joke, right? Like the, it, there's usually a theme, I'm guessing, to a set. And so when you were talking about, you know, does because something didn't land initially at the first layer and then it, you know, lands later on after the, the joke has already passed. Do you think that's partially because the storytelling and the setup and where the timing of it was relative to the setup, uh, that maybe just didn't work out very well? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's exactly it. And I think one thing that comedians get wrong a lot and I think this from a marketing background from a day job is no matter what we think, the audience is always correct, right? It's like, as a marketer, I might come put together this amazing marketing plan. I think is awesome. 
I did the research. I got the data. I put together this really, what I think is a really engaging piece of advertising. And I put it in front of what I think is going to be a target audience that this is going to resonate with, and it doesn't resonate. A lot of comedians, when they do that, would be like, audience sucks. <laughs> but as a marketer, you kind of know, well, no, because I'm the one trying to appeal to the audience. Like, if I'm not appealing to the audience, the problem is what I put in front of them, not the audience, right? So I, I, I think that's one thing um, a lot of mature and experienced comedians understand, but some new comedians like, or even intermediate comedians are like, ah, no, that audience sucks for this thing. I'm like, no, if you're trying to appeal to that audience and it's not hitting for them, it's the thing that you're putting in front of them. <laughs> you know, one, one thing too, I think has really helped in my comedy career from a daytime job is like you never get married to an idea and i think that's very hard for some comedians because some of it really comes from the heart and lived experience so for them they're like but this is funny for me this is my story that i'm trying to tell but i'm like if you tell it in that way or you tell that piece of it it might not be the best way to do it and as a marketer you know don't get too married but for some comedians who where you know those things come from deep inside of them and then you know they're being vulnerable on stage and it's not hitting, then it hurts extra. I can kind of feel it. I think, and this is just my opinion, like as I would imagine as a comedian, like the good comedians are the ones who have the most third party neutral perspective on things, right? So that way they can kind of play two forces against each other without actually being, you know, emotionally connected to either. Um, and I feel like that's where you really find the irony in what one person's saying compared to another person or certain type of situation. And I'm sure that there is comedy that is that does, you know, sort of speak to the from the heart. Right. And I think there are moments for that. But I would imagine it's like a skilled comedian has to take themselves out of their own character and also jump back into themselves if they are a character. And so it's like playing two different types of you know, persona at one time and just giving the audience cues of when you are switching, you know, basically switching gears. Yeah. And, and, and I, I feel you on that a lot. And I think one thing that I've really adopted, I think helps me with that is when I actually perform live on stage or whatever it is, I come in with the mentality of I am performing. So if as a performer, this is my job. And if it doesn't land as a performer, I have a job to entertain. That's how I take it. If I'm not entertained, then I'm not doing my job as a performer. It isn't, I'm not landing as basically some kind of public representative for a thing, which I mean, if you can do both of those simultaneously, that's awesome. But if you can't, primary job, right? you're entertaining. Otherwise it's like a lot of people in the industry would be like, then you're doing a TED talk. In which case, I'll, I'll hey, a, TED. a TED talk can be entertaining at the same time, right? Like they, they can. They, yeah, it's just that the people up there, right? Like they just try to make presentations, and uh, it's not really with a comedic angle. That's all. It's not to say that they couldn't be funny. Yeah, I, I want to backtrack a bit too with like basically doing comedy with like an Asian cultural background and 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 that context. It's interesting because um, I had watched a a play by a, a, the daughter of a Vietnamese refugee. And she had made this play about her mom and basically how a lot of cultural values in the Vietnamese, in the Vietnamese North American community um, played a role in how she passed away. And she basically told this very moving story 
um, she she acted the whole thing out. It was it was a single person play. I cried, my partner cried. It was it, it really hit home for for us on a lot of levels. And when she did the Q and A, um, someone said, "How did your family react to you telling this story?" And she said, "Not well, because <laughs> they're like, why are you airing out our laundry?" Yeah, right? exactly. Like, I've I've also gotten not as a comedian, but just like as an Asian person airing out my family's you know history, or maybe you just you know some people just need to vent, right? You need to explain a situation, but you know your maybe your Asian parents are like, why are you telling other people you know about you know the family dynamic kind of thing? It's just like because you know it's bother either it's bothering me or it's like I need you know uh, to talk with other people to how do I navigate the situation. And yeah, I think it just comes down from that sort of like authoritarian top down, you know, kind of culture and, you know, respecting your elders, you know, sort of being really exaggerated uh, in terms of like how far um, someone needs to actually respect their elders and what does respect actually mean in for different types of contexts. Yeah, no, that, that, that is really meaningful too, because that, that, that was one thing that I, I continue to struggle with, right? Because a lot of my comedy comes from my lived experience from basically being a child of like refugee immigrant parents. And my mom came out to one of my shows <laughs> and she did not appreciate my jokes about her at all. <laughs> did you did you say my mom is also in the show? Give it up for Mama Wong right over here, right? Like, did you acknowledge her, right? Like, so that way, like, you know, the audience could, you know, feel could empathize right and you know introduce a new dynamic i i really wanted to i i actually did i really wanted to but she explicitly said i do not want you to do that <laughs> which i think it, it, it does come from a little bit of that background right like no one kind of wants to be spotlighted and it's like if you're going to talk about me don't talk about me in front of me <laughs> you could have just said my mom is somewhere out here i'll let you guess which one it is right and just don't say anything <laughs> from there <laughs> so the spotlight is just widened right across the entire floor of older asian women and it can only be so many of those <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, that's great because i i actually so i have a show coming up that i'm producing um on mother's day coming up oh boy in, she's gonna in, love uh, this I invited her. I, I said, Mom, it's Mother's Day. Come down to the Mother's Day show I'm putting together. And she literally said, no, I went to your last show. I'm good. <laughs> what about what about, oh. your, what about your dad? Have you taken your dad to any of your shows? I have invited him. But he coincidentally has work every time I invite him. <laughs> okay. You should tell him the story of uh, Jimmy Oyang and his dad. Right. I'm, I don't know if you've heard his story about how his, oh, yes. his dad like you know also assumed like oh just being comedian right like seems like an easy job anybody could do it and you know like as a, i'm sure as a comedian it's like no i've worked really hard right i've had to go through so many skits and then he was saying like oh his dad just showed up for an audition one day and he looked like he was half asleep and he's just like he was just worried that his dad was gonna bomb it and then lo and behold he did it it was just like he did it did it well See, see, it's not, not so bad, right? Like, you know, typical Asian dad, you know, fashion. And I think Jimmy Oyang was just like uh, flabbergasted, right? Just couldn't believe like how well like he did it. And he was saying like that his dad was getting more shows, you know, more callbacks like than he was, right? Like for a short period of time. 
And <laughs> that was, I think, the most amazing thing for him. Yeah, I, I love that story. <laughs> I actually love that story. Because in, in a way, like, I, I, I imagine Jimmy Yang thinks this way too, right? He's, like, so proud of his dad. Yeah. Because I, I think, I really do think that, like, children are, like, basically the best of parts of their parents and the worst parts. And the worst, yeah. <laughs> and, like, I, I get my, I, I think I get my best parts for both my mom and my dad. Okay. I know, like, for both of them, I, I know they were, they have, like, performing hearts. Like, my dad did martial arts a lot. Okay. My, my mom did uh, traditional Chinese dancing. Like, she, like, performed on stage and did that for a long time, too. Um, but, you know, typical uh, immigrant experience. Their parents didn't really support that and stuff. Um, so, when I go on stage, I'm like, this is coming from somewhere. And both my parents are basically, one way or another, artists or performers. And I, th- I like to think if my mom had the courage to go up on stage, she would kill it. <laughs> she would kill There's it. There's still time. <laughs> yeah. I'm still trying to convince her. I'm like, look, half my material is you anyways. You can shit on me for a bit. Yeah, just change the role, right? I mean, but but maybe also, like, they're really... Maybe she just doesn't feel comfortable with the forum, right? Maybe it would just need... I, I mean, I don't know what, like, the demographic, right, of the comedy clubs are like. But maybe she just needs to go to a... I don't know. Like, okay, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. Like, go to an Amazhang Hall, and that's where she does her stand-up <laughs> bit. Like, oh, you know, my son, he tells me, you know, a bunch of... He slanders my name, right? Just hear the mahjong tiles like clanging and stuff like that. Like, that's where that's where old people gossip, anyways, right? So like, it just has to be the right forum for that. Like, maybe she's already yeah. just you know making jokes about you on I don't know like WeChat or something like that or some other platform. Yeah, you kill it on WeChat <laughs> for real. <laughs> she, she, I would on my daytime job, I'd have to get her as an influencer or something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, funny thing is that uh, on my pod, this guy was actually my roommate uh, in college. Uh, So uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of Marshall Club. Um, They are like a martial arts uh, YouTube channel. And also they do like martial arts skits and stuff like that. And like some of them, the members were like in Shang-Chi and everything everywhere all at once. Uh, So they did the fight choreograph, uh, choreography for that. Uh, but they said that a lot of their inspiration came from uh, obviously Hong Kong cinema, uh, which is kind of uh, they're putting their own kind of unique spin, you know, on that type of, you know, uh, cinematic style of action where it's, you know, usually one pan. It doesn't cut um, the way that my roommate Daniel had described it was they when they cut stuff like an action movie, let's say it's like Fast and the Furious. It's like punch, cut. The other punch, cut, right? Like reaction, cut, right? Like everything is not smooth uh, and in one shot. Uh, so he was saying how, uh, you know, a lot for a lot of his idols, you know, in the Hong Kong, you know, cinema scene, a lot of them went through like Peking Opera School uh, and stuff like that. Ooh. So uh, the fact that you said your dad is a martial artist, um, that your mom is a dancer. So basically, Michelle Yeoh is like the embodiment, right, of your parents, essentially, because she yeah. she was a dancer by you know by training, and then she became a martial artist, you know, as you know someone in Hong Kong trying to you know break into the action uh, film genre. 
so yeah, yeah. That's, that's my take you should you should have them go see everything everywhere all at once just because uh it's michelle yo's time to shine yeah she I, I that is on my to-do list for sure. <laughs> yeah, she's definitely inspiration because that that is amazing. Like I, I remember watching a uh, interview she did, right? And she talks about her dance background and how that really helped her with her martial arts background. Yeah, and I thought that was awesome because like I, I think, um, especially in uh, I think the Asian community, like we segment out arts quite a bit. It's like dance is dance, martial arts is martial arts, right? And it's like written word is written word, and. They, they all have parts that complement each other. And I think we, we should embrace that more. And I think we had a good step towards that with Shaolin soccer. <laughs> I really do. Okay. Like, well, you, I don't know if you heard. I don't know if you heard, but Kung Fu Hustle 2 is coming out. I did not hear this. Amazing news. Yeah, oh, I, yeah. I read about it recently. It was just like, I think it's like 15 years ago. The first one came out, I think. So, uh, been 15 years. Holy so it's coming out. I don't know when. I just remember that that it's it is coming out. They've got some market uh, promotional marketing materials already out. That is amazing. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that. And I, I would say that that is one thing. Um, I think the Chinese community, like comedic wise, has held on to very well is uh, their, their physical humor. I think is is very much still alive and like expanding. Whereas, like, I think with, like, Western uh, comedy styles, it's going a lot more towards, uh, I, what would the word be? Um, clever wordplay, okay. I would say. So it's, it's taking a step away from, like, the Mr. Bean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas, I think there's a lot you can do with that. And I, I encourage folks, you know, like, don't think that's, like, a lesser form. I think that's great. And I, I think that is a whole genre on its own. Really do. I think... Part of the peaking opera stuff is also what plays into uh, what you were talking about earlier, where you had to sing, you had to dance, right? You had to act and you had to do it all right on stage, right? There wasn't like, hey, we're going to get you a stunt double for, you know, the action scenes. You're not going to swap out, right? You know, we're not going to swap you out or voice you over, right? Like it's literally like the Chinese version of a Broadway play. Right. But I would say, yeah, even, I almost say even, yeah. but also way more intense. Right. Uh, because, you know, they had everyone has to do their own stunts. Right. There's no stunt double for everything. It's just like, you know, everything, I think, in Hong Kong cinema was just very much on a budget. You didn't really have insurance policies or anything like that. Like, you know, if there's no there's no such thing as like, you know, uh, maximum work hours right it's just like you keep filming it you keep doing it all that stuff right until like you get it right right and uh, there's just less workers or workers comp uh limitations right in, in asia or especially specifically in china or hong kong for that kind of stuff so you could say that that whole process like it's a grindhouse right you put your body and your soul through a lot but like you know especially when you're younger you have the ability to obviously like recover from it but you know, like the Jackie Chans and Michelle Yeohs and stuff like that, they're kind of of, you know, a, a lost era, right? Because you're never really going to see all that stuff yeah. like again. Uh, but you could still see probably traces of that in like the, I'm assuming like Chinese variety shows and stuff like that, that your parents probably sort of maybe grew up with or like they've seen uh, some of their favorite 
uh, I know actors and stuff like that, like that they've known, you know, for a really long time uh, and watched that. They basically grew up with them. Yeah, no, I, I feel you on that for sure. It's, 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 it's interesting you bring up, it's like in every interview Jackie Chan and Michelle Yeoh has done, like the, the interviewer will be like, so like, who insures you? And every time they're like, no one wants to insure us. Because <laughs> <laughs> every insurance company knows that they're going to get hurt. Because <laughs> they, they, yeah, yeah. Right, they, they do all their, they own all their own stuff. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you think it's like, sometimes there's like camera magic, sure. But like for them, they are the magic. Yeah. Which is amazing to me. So interesting. I don't think I don't know if you know, but for Shang Chi, the so I think Andy was death dealer. So his name's Andy Lee. Uh, uh, he was death dealer in the movie. Um, he's part of Martial Club, which is the group that my friend started with, like two other people, uh, Andy, Brian, nice. and my friend Daniel. And he was saying, my friend was saying how, or Daniel was saying how. Uh, they use the Jackie Chan stunt team, right, for a lot of the Shang-Chi fight scenes. So, like, for example, when they're the bus, right, like, you have that, they're in the tunnel, right, they have the one shot, right, where, you know, they're, you know, doing all the action scenes, you kind of, it's almost like a video game where you're kind of, like, progressing, you know, yeah. progressing through the bus, right, but it's not like they cut a lot, uh, or cut as in, like, um, you know, they didn't switch camera angles like that often. They kept everything kind of fluid through one scene or when they did like the whole, uh, you know, catch the punch in the jacket, twist it around. Like that's very, you know, Jackie Chan, uh, Hong Kong cinema style reminiscent. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we definitely do see where that uh, influence is kind of trying to make its way back into uh, Western cinema. And I'll bet like it's you know, shorter, uh, shorter scenes or like in, in small bits and pieces. Yeah, I think, yeah, both, I think even, like, yeah, Hollywood cinema could learn a bit from, from that, too, because it, it flows, like what you're saying, right? The flow is, is better, I think, when you're watching those action scenes, when you when when you watch, um, what's the one with Optimus Prime? Transformers. Transformers, yeah. When you watch a Transformers fight scene, it just looks like two giant metal robots having intercourse or something. <laughs> you have no <laughs> idea what's going on. <laughs> oh i guess there's robot sex yeah. i guess but i think the thing it but makes like, it yeah, with uh, go ahead sorry yeah. oh i was gonna say yeah with like uh shang chi especially like when when he threw a punch the camera went with the punch yeah right it wasn't exactly. like a static thing and then like the other guy got hit in the same frame like the camera pivots with the motion which helps you know like oh where's the motion coming from where's the motion going those things i think are small things but big impact I think the thing that makes it really help stand out uh, are two things. One, it makes it seem like it's a dance, like because that's where martial arts and uh, Chinese dancing, right? They kind of intertwine, right? Like they're kind of almost, essentially, you could say almost one and the same, right? But when put on a stage, right, it's it's almost like a dance, right? Or even like when what was it? The main character, uh, Tony Leung, and like his you know then lover, like when they were doing their fight scene, which is obviously, I think it's was it reminiscent, very reminiscent of uh, House of Flying Daggers. I think that's the one. Uh, it was either that mm -hmm. or Hero or something like that. Um, like it was very much a dance. Like you see them kind of like gliding, you know, uh, into the wind, right? They're, they're fighting, but they're also like in love with each other. So it definitely tells like a story. 
Uh, so that's something one that I notice is an appreciation for. But also in the Shang-Chi fight scenes, like there's a comedic aspect to it. Like because everything's shot in one thing, you could see how the props are being used, right? Someone starting from uh, a weakened sort of, you know, or a disadvantageous situation, right? They pick something up, right? And now they become, uh, they, they lead into a more advantageous position. And that humor of how they got there from being in a disadvantageous situation um, to an advantageous situation, like that's the comedy and humor that comes from action, which you don't really see a lot of. Yeah. That, I, I, that's a really good point. Yeah, that's something I really miss from Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, that they do that really well. Because I, I love how you broke that down too, right? It's like you come from a disadvantaged situation and then like basically you use your coat, then you get a thing, then you get a stick, then you get a thing, right? Then you kind of build up. I, I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's, isn't that the same I, I, for like comedy as well? Or like when you're a stand-up, <laughs> right? You're just saying like, I don't know, for example... You know, so I was spanked as a kid or I was beaten up by my mom as a kid or something like that. Like you just start off with some trope and like some traumatic, you know, experience. And then you sort of try to build your way up like from that. Yeah, that that's a great analogy. <laughs> yeah, actually. And it's uh, it's like, so some comedians go like the other way, right? They're like, I'm such, in such a privileged position. I don't get you. But like, <laughs> I mean, the most of us aren't. Right. So yeah, that's the majority of us is like, yeah, these are the hard things that I've lived through. Like, <laughs> let's let's laugh at it together, which I think is great. And it's it's almost like I love how you kind of like had that like parallel to martial arts because it's I think for martial arts, especially in entertainment, people focused a lot on the martial, but not on the art, which is something that Jet Li has said, right? Yeah. It, it, it's a balance, right? Otherwise, it'd just be like martial killing. Right? <laughs> it would be like an art factor. But like, I, there is an art factor. And I think with, with comedy, right, it, it's like, there's make me laugh, make me think, but there's a balance. Interesting. I never, I, just... that's true. Like when you said, make me laugh, make me think, right? Um, I almost parallel that to uh, in, you know, Chinese martial arts or like East Asian martial arts, there's this concept uh, that I talked to my, my friend uh, Daniel about, and it was like, you're both the scholar and the warrior, right? Like as a martial artist, right? Like, you know, you meant like, but for the most part, a lot of what we see right in Western action films are like um, just the action pieces of it. It's they've stripped out the scholarly sort of aspect to it. Uh, and the scholarly aspect to it is like the morals behind martial arts. Right. Like, you know, how you should conduct yourself. When should you actually use martial arts? Right. Like, you know, should you be the aggressor? When to be the aggressor and when to, you know, uh be more passive right uh these are all sort of moral or emotional temperaments uh, so it's interesting when you said uh a comedian makes you laugh right but also makes you think right so in this instance it could be the laughter is like the martial arts piece right like you find something that's really yeah. funny right it it gets a lot of activity a lot of action but then there's the the introspective part of it which is the thinking part um which was something that was a unique parallel that i was just thinking through uh kind of at this moment yeah i love the way you put it that, that is yeah that is beautiful because and yeah i think with all things right especially if it's an art form there, there is a balance and it and it sounds cheesy but i, I think that's true right because if you're just all hacked and you're just then you know it's cheap laughs and then there's nothing right to remember there's also no substance right there's so there's no there's nothing that like actually makes it very grounded so if it's just like 
one funny thing after another, but they're all disconnected, right? I feel like uh, it's it's just kind of like you said, all hacked together, stitched together, not with any sort of design in mind. Yeah, I I don't know if you know this comedian. Um, he's a British comedian called uh, Jimmy Carr. Uh, I don't. He's he's one of the big ones over there, and he's very famous for like very raunchy one-liners, and he'll have like a whole hour set where he's just throwing like heavy one-liner after heavy one-liner. And he was doing a uh, interview, and even for him, he was like, "Look, for me, what I've been doing for most of my professional career is giving these fleeting moments of happiness." Like, I'll give a one-liner that hits really hard, makes you laugh, but it's not going to make you think or stick with you after you leave the show. You're going to be like, yo, I had a really good time tonight. But after you go home, that's kind of it. Even for him, and I think for someone in his position and his career and his success to be like, I am now working on more longer-form comedy where I can tell more meaningful things and for some of that to be equally as funny and for it to stick to people. I think that was great because he is very good at doing what he does. Mm -hmm. And even at that level, he's like, I can do more. <laughs> Got it. Just sounds like he was born in the wrong era, to be honest. He should have just been born in the TikTok era where it's just like you have your, your six <laughs> seconds of fame and like, you know, you kind of move on to the next thing, right? Like, you know, very, very low context uh, type social media platforms. Yeah. And I, I would love to use that as a springboard to talk about like, and I, I think that it's, it's been a very heavy talk, especially with like Dave Chappelle specials coming out and everything. Like how how comedy sh should be viewed, whether or not it's safe space or not, and with the recent Will Smith thing at the Oscars, right? Because um, when that happened, a lot of uh, comedian friends of mine actually got scared because they thought that set a really bad precedent. Because if Will Smith can get away with it, if I'm at an open mic, I say something, trying out a shitty joke, lands the wrong way, some guy gets mad. Will Smith got away with it, so. <laughs> why can't i and we're like oh should we be scared and it's it's weird because when you're on stage especially when it's a performance folks are there for you the venue is relying on you basically to 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 run a show as a producer even if not even as a performer um to basically have control of the audience if one audience member gets out of hand I think a lot of comedians, especially when you're performing, feel it's our responsibility to basically talk down the situation. Um, and I, I think we, we get that a lot in the form of hecklers. Hecklers is like, you know, they'll basically do that kind of verbal, verbal intersection, sometimes like verbal abuse while you're on stage. And it's kind of the comedian's job to shut it down. But when it gets physical, then it gets really weird, right? Because then you're, you you kind of want to keep control of things. You don't want to ruin the night. And then someone's coming on stage. You got like maybe like two, three seconds to react. You don't know what's happening. Most of us aren't fighters, right? <laughs> That's why we're talking and not fighting. And yeah, it's, it, that did scare us for a bit. That, that did. And uh, it, I think it is getting to a point where I think us as a society have to come to some kind of common ground to say, look, we understand that these are jokes. We understand when what you're saying is not a joke because sometimes comedians won't admit that because especially when you're on stage, if you're just trying something out or if you're riffing or, or doing what um, the guy you, you saw do, your crowd work mm -hmm. on the fly, sometimes it doesn't land. Sometimes there is no punchline. And I've been in that situation where I've like rambled. I've gotten to the point where, oh no, I got no punchline. <laughs> <laughs> and I think as a comedian, 
it's important to acknowledge that to be like whoops yeah <laughs> I, I, I went in a certain way and usually audience members laugh with you because they're with you they don't want you to fail and i, I think that's one of the, the the most awesome things about live theater or live performances in general is the audience does not want you to fail which i think is is so cool because when you're failing and you acknowledge it as a comedian, they'll laugh with you because they're with you. They want you to succeed because when you succeed, they laugh. They don't want to watch your burning ship. <laughs> they're not going to be laughing uh, anymore after that. That's why it's just like, oh, no, like they're, they're there for a specific reason. Or it's just like I paid $10, right, to, you know, have a laugh, yeah. right? Like you better keep making yeah. me laugh. Like just get back on track. Yeah, exactly. And so that's a, one of the things I think with live theater is you know when the performer is uncomfortable and then you feel uncomfortable because they're uncomfortable. Because you're part of the process now, right? Yeah. And it's like, oh, no. And I think as long as you, I think acknowledging it goes a long way. Um, I mean, if you're just like a shitty audience member, there's sometimes there's nothing you can do. But I think just acknowledging like, whoops, went a step too far or ah, got off track. Got usually they'll come back with you. And I, that's something I'm constantly trying to practice and learn. And it's, it's not easy because you do feel like you are in command and you have to put your best foot forward. And once things go derailed and you're like, oh, no, how, what do I do? You do go panic. But with, I think with practice and just knowing that the audience is on your side, then you should be okay. I think one thing about the whole Will Smith situation is, one, when Chris Rock took the slap, Right. Like it was actually pretty, I mean, cool. No pun intended. How, like how normal, well, not normal. He was obviously stunned, right? Like, you know, that this is actually happening, but to play it off as calmly and cool, right. As he did in front of obviously yeah, a live stage. So and, and it was just like, you know, he took the hit. He's stunned. He's like, wow, that actually happened. It's like, we're at the Oscars, baby. Right. Like essentially, uh, <laughs> Um, and it was just, yeah, he just took it really calmly and, you know, probably set a good example for comedians in terms of how you diffuse a situation just kind of in that moment. Cause obviously he's not, you know, uh, expecting obviously to get hit. And even when, you know, Will Smith started, uh, heckling him and we'll just use that in that term, you know, it's, I think it's the right term for that situation. He was just like, it's a joke, right? Like. And I guess I'm surprised that Will Smith as another actor, right? Cause like, you know, like you're in an actor when you're up with a bunch of other actors, I would just imagine, you know, even if something is a joke or offensive that you understand this is an actor's space. It's like, if it's like almost saying if another comedian made a joke and, you know, they got upset. Right. And, you know, they started heckling another comedian Right. Like, I don't know. It's kind of weird to have it come like full circle. You're supposed to be in a safe space as actors, as part of your profession. Uh, but to kind of act as like, you know, another random member of the audience. Right. That, you know, uh, is not aware of what it's like to actually be an actor on stage and to me what you could say mess up or, you know, say something uh, potentially inappropriate. Right. Like uh, he definitely did not allow for that safe space to to happen uh, especially uh, especially in an award ceremony yeah that, that was yeah i i think you beautifully worded it 
And yeah, kudos to Chris Rock for just just rolling and keeping professional. Because if that happened to me, I, I think I might have freaked out. <laughs> I think the only two people that have slapped me in my life are like my mom and your dad. <laughs> yeah, probably. I was about to say my sister. I don't even. I don't even think my sister's done it. <laughs> like, shit. Like, yeah, for that to happen, I'd be, I'd be flabbergasting. I, I think I would lose all sense of professionalism. I, I is this is this PG thirteen or can I like? Yeah, yeah, it's PG thirteen. Or you can you can you can swear. It's fine. So I, I had a bit about the Olympics, and I I didn't even know how to react. It it wasn't even like a physical heckle. It was a verbal one, and I was like, you know, the Olympics were coming up. It was like I think the Tokyo one. Yeah. And I said, you know, one of the, our Canadian Olympians on the swim team won a gold medal when she was 16 and i asked the audience what have you done when you were 16 and then someone yelled suck a lot of dicks (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know how to react i was just like i just i don't know there's no gold medal for that i don't know what do i say that's the joke that's like that's the proper response there's no gold medal for that i mean maybe unless there's you know some you know hundred dollar coins that are involved (laughs) yeah I, i think that was one of the best heckles i've ever gotten (laughs) it was constructive because now every time i do that joke i say that part too (laughs) and i'm like yo what would the criteria be like how many you can go at once or like but yeah i i definitely know the feeling of being flabbergasted especially when you're on the spot and it's not a nice feeling Mm -hmm. (laughs) it is is almost as bad as bombing because if you bomb at least you're present and you know when you're flabbergasted you're you're almost stuck in the past right? as the world moves around you. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> like you're in I panic doing? mode, I would imagine, like when you're flabbergasted, but you're in panic mode, but you don't have time to think, right? Of like, what is, you know, what's that? What's like one one answer that I could just use, like a trump card, like get out of jail free card, like that I could just say right now, and that'll get me out of this situation to whatever, recalibrate myself. Yeah. I th- that's one thing I, I I would love to ask other comedians too is like what goes through your head when you're like bombing or like when you're like panicking because for me I'm like I, I spiral sometimes where I'm like yo you're bombing you gotta pull them back how do you pull them back oh wait you're thinking they can see you thinking <laughs> I wonder how stupid your face looks right now and, just like <laughs> spiral. and I, I love to hear what other comedians think because maybe they're like man fuck these guys or something you know, something that I learned from, uh, I forgot. I learned from someone, at, not, not at Jam City, but at another workplace was the power of a long pause, right? So mm. the long pause, it creates this, one, I think it helps reset, you know, environment, right? And also it makes it seem like you're thinking about something very profound, even if you are flabbergasted or like, you know, kind of blank in the head, but you just stare, stare at that, you know, either stare at space or stare at something, right? The long pause like makes it seem like you have something very profound. And then you just move on from that. That you, I would, that, I mean, maybe that could be a way to get out of it is just long silence uh, is actually yeah. your friend, right? If something happens, because you know, the crowd will start to die down a little bit because they'll be like, oh, what's, what's Andy going to say, right? Like, you know, it must be What's something. Nice. It's gonna be good. Yeah, it's going to be good. The suspense is killing me. And it's like, well, that's it, guys, right? Like, like you know, you just, that's <laughs> what, you know, like that's a way to, uh, you know, break 
the ice is with long pauses and, and silence. Yeah, I, I really like that. And that's something I've been trying to become better at. And I think a lot of comedians could be better at is, is leaning into the silence. Because I think I, Trevor Noah put it the best. You, he used to be really scared of silences. Until someone was like, when they're silent, that means they're listening. It's true. Because that means they're like, okay, what? Yeah, right? It's not like they're talking with each other. They're silent. So they're waiting for you, what you're going to say next. And that You got their attention. So I, I'm trying to lean into that a lot more. But I would say for even myself and a lot of other comedians, silence is is one of our worst enemies because that means they're not laughing. <laughs> but I think it's silence when you're in control of that silence. That's the difference. Yeah, right? when you're out of control. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're inducing the silence versus like they're silent after you try to land, you know, a specific type of joke. Yes. That then you're just bombing. <laughs> <laughs> Which I you can also lean into. One of my old comedy teachers was like, I lean into bombs. I want to see how far I can push it. <laughs> Which makes sense. Cause one thing as a comedian, I would say, is like you really have to love the feeling. Cause the time to return ratio is so low. <laughs> and I like to give you like uh an understanding of it, usually when you go to open mic, you get five minutes. But there's probably like twenty or thirty people signed up that night. So it might the, the open mic might start at like eight or nine, for like five minutes each. The host might do their own little thing, transition jokes. So really, it's like round up to like six or seven minutes each. Thirty people, you're looking at 180 minutes, min. That's like a three hour open mic, and common courtesy is you try to stay for as long as you can. Like ballpark back, ballpark that to like an hour. So you're staying basically an hour to do five minutes which is like crazy inefficient in terms of uh, time spent in sure. return. Because, <laughs> yeah, you're only getting that like five minutes of feedback. And when you do that five minutes, it's not like you can like click pause, take feedback notes, whatever. You just got to, it's, it's real time. You got to basically make note of it as you go. And then you sit back down for another 55 minutes <laughs> for, for other people. So it's like five minutes for 55 minutes for other people. The return ratio is so low. But if you love it enough, that's what you do. <laughs> I think there's two things. One, I think even though you would perform for five minutes, right? You get to watch other people. You get to watch other people's mistakes, right? So there's, I think the ROI is a little bit uh, <laughs> higher on that end by watching other people's mistakes and figuring out how, you know, you can incorporate it, whether you're what, what to do or what not to do. Um I was gonna say I totally forgot what I was gonna say for the second part. I think it was oh it was more <laughs> it was more in lines with being uh, impromptu or you know improvising, right? I think there are, are people that they just think in jokes either all the time or they have some sort of like reaction right to things. So like let's say for example like when you watch Dave Chappelle, right? Like he is someone who is probably thinking in jokes all the time because he knows on the spot like how to recover right immediately or just like transition into something um so i feel like there are people who are just always in that mindset um i'll, I'll give you an example one of my friends he's an aspiring musician and he does uh, uh does nerd rapping um which is basically he talks about uh like 
anime or games or you know different things like that uh i think he made a song about boba tea one time um and (laughs) if you ask like if you ask someone like who's in that profession to hey to rap right it's like okay maybe they'll ask for like here's some words right like that you could integrate they'll find ways to integrate it right just because they're always in that mindset and so whether it's like uh and he actually did a pretty good job, actually, where someone said like Super Smash Brothers or like Boba T, right? Like, you know, they'll figure out uh, different different kinds of wordplay, right, to try to make it work, even though um, even though they may not know what they're doing at the time, they just find like the the right topics to contrast it against, whether it's wordplay or like the the topic is obviously they put it against something that's also very ironic. I like that. I, I really like that. I, I think, I, I don't know if this may be a controversial take. Really good creativity comes with constraints. It's true. That's what I like to think. Cause it's like when you're like, you could do anything yeah. and you're like, the options are too many. I don't know. I don't have a framework. You're going to, you're going to overthink it. Where do I go? Yeah. Whereas like when you know, it's like, here is the box. Do what you want within or without the box. Yeah. Then at least you got like some kind of thing to ground you. And I, I think being creative doesn't necessarily mean you have to be good with words or you have to be good with visual arts or anything. Being creative is being able to play around a set of constraints. That's that's kind of how I, I like to think about it. And when you get a set of constraints, I really think that's when folks are able to be even more creative than just anything goes. <laughs> it's like, where do you go? <laughs> right. Exactly. The pressure makes the diamond. Exactly. Yeah. That's, I, I really like that, that saying. Cool. I want, I, learned. I want, I'm glad you learned something. Cause I'm always learning. I feel like I'm learning something from you about, about comedy and just kind of how it all oh, works. Thank you. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, Asian Americans and comedy. Like you have, you know, Ronnie Chang, Aziz Ansari, Joe Koi, Ali Wong, right. You have a lot of, Asians, um, I mean, Asian Americans, but also, you know, Asians that are coming to America, right, to kind of be able to do their stand-up bits. Like, what is what is that kind of meant to you seeing uh, Asians in comedy, like, at least from a stand-up, you know, sort of perspective, just because I feel like it's only been maybe, I don't know, last 10 years or so, uh, maybe 10 or even five, five to 10 years that we've seen a more proliferation of Asians in stand-up. Like before we would maybe see like Jackie Chan, right? And more like martial arts, action comedy flicks, which is a, a type of comedy, but not necessarily uh, in the stand-up sort of variety. Uh, so talk to me about your thoughts about, uh, you know, the, rep- the rise of uh, Asian Americans or Asians in the stand-up comedy scene. Yeah, it's- I would say it was very inspiring, especially when I got into it at first, because I think when I got into it, Ali Wong had her second special out. Okay. Was that that Baby Cobra? I think so. Yeah. I'm real confused because like every, like the first two, she was both pregnant. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, no, she had her second stand up special out. My friends and I loved it. So, and that also put the precedent out that was like, hey, this isn't a one-off. This isn't like Ali Wong had one special and then we gave up on it. She had a second one. And I think around the same time, Ron Chang had come out with his special. Jamie O. Yang, I think, got signed onto um, 
some Netflix series, and I was like, there, there is a precedent for success now. They're like, society is ready for these stories. The North American society is ready to accept our kind of entertainment and hear us out. And I, I thought that was really inspiring. And that was one of the things that kind of pushed me forward to actually try to pursue stand-up comedy as well as like a very serious thing. Because before that, we had, I, I think, like Bobby Lee from Bad TV um, and, and some other like very serious Asian actors. Um, oh, shit, I forgot his name. But uh, the, the guy from uh, Harold and Kumar. Um, uh, John Cho? Yeah, John Cho. Yeah, he's okay. amazing. We had, we had like Bob Lee, we had John Cho, I'm probably missing a lot of others. Like, but that, that was like the Hollywood examples that I can really think of outside of, you know, the, the Jackie Chan's and Jet Li's of the world. Um, but from there on, I was like, there's a precedent for folks just listening to us orate, which is kind of what we do. And I was like, that's amazing. And I, I think I just uh, finished reading this book um, called the, the Making of Asian North America. Oh, interesting. And I... I yeah, and it's, it's really interesting on how much Asian Americans have helped shape North America as a whole, like even myself in Canada. And I, I think the impact of, of what the community has done is, is really meaningful. And I think the communities that have survived and now are starting to flourish finally here are also, you know, they, they deserve to have their stories heard as well. You know, outside of just my parents and my relatives um, and, and my own lived experience, I, I think there, there are a lot of folks who have a, a lot of stories to tell. Like Simu's story is crazy. <laughs> I, I, uh, I going from like it, a but... accountant to, you know, actor taking that leap. Yeah, the fellow Torontonian. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's, it's funny, like from Toronto, we have um, this suburb called Brampton. And for some reason, we have a lot of talent coming from Brampton. What is it about? What is it about Brampton? Like, describe to me that area. Like, is it you know, uh, is it pretty diverse? Right? Is it there are a lot of comedy clubs there? I, I wouldn't say there are a lot of comedy clubs there. There is like a really good theater there. Um, the ethnicity is predominantly, I, I believe, uh, Indian. That that is there. Like we call it B town for Brown town. <laughs> uh, okay. And it's like, and then like the the Chinese community's got like a Markham covered. They, they kind of all got their boroughs. Um, but yeah, Brampton for some reason I think just really supports the arts, and then we just got a lot of artistic talent coming out of there. Like Alisa Kara comes from there as well. Okay, I, I think I said her name right. But yeah, uh, for for whatever reason, Brampton is a huge art hub. <laughs> Folks just come out of. And I'm uh, sorry, go go back to uh, your original question with you know, the, the Asian community and, and, and uh, the comedians that have really come out in the scene. Yeah, I, I think they're really inspiring and, and telling stories that a lot of us relate to very, very well. And I'd like to be able to join and contribute to those stories. Like from mine, even though I think everyone's got their lived experience. Um, one thing I'm learning a lot is the Asian American experience is similar to a lot of others. And I think the more I recognize that, I think the more I recognize basically 
people outside of privilege, our stories are very similar to one another. So it's not like, you know, the Asian North American experience is specific just to the Asian North American experience. I think a lot of Hispanic communities in North America can, can relate. A, a lot of people from the Black community in North America can relate to a lot of the struggles because I think a lot of our struggles are similar because we've been put in places of disadvantage. And outside of like the cultural specifics, right? a, a lot of us have a lot to basically bond over. And I think that gives me a lot of hope. And and that's what really drives me. When now when I go out to do shows, I try to have it have a like what you said, a theme that's a little bit more meaningful. And I'll try to like sugar in up into those Jimmy Carr shitty jokes if I can. <laughs> Got it. Uh, what's the what are kind of the main differences between, you know, the Canadian comedy scene versus like the US comedy scene, in your opinion? Ooh, okay. I have a hot take on this one. I would say the Canadian comedy scene, folks don't usually come out to a comedy club to see a specific person. If I go like, my headliner has been on CBC, has been on uh, JFL, the Just for Last Festival, um, has winner of the Winnipeg Comedy Festival, whatever it is. Folks will be like, cool, don't know who that is. <laughs> they, they won't come out and see them. Whereas I think in the States, you'll be like, you know, Ali Wong's performing or like Dave Chappelle's going to be here tonight. People will go to see those folks. And even in Toronto, we feel it too. Like if a Dave Chappelle or an Ali Wong or someone really big or Bobby Lee comes out here, they will actually pull crowds to see them. Whereas like local comedians who are making headways, nobody cares because they're not, they're not big in America is like the best way I can put it. I like, I don't know if anyone um, outside of the, comedy community could name like the most up-and-coming co- canadian comedian right now like i probably would ask you i i'm just gonna say <laughs> yeah, flat out right now uh i would not be able to answer that question and i'm gonna be true real i i can't either <laughs> and i would say those are the biggest like that's i think the biggest difference outside of the like government funding and support um those i think would be the biggest things and i would say just the density of the states y'all Y'all have some major cities. It's true. <laughs> it's true we do. I mean, I guess we also have, like, centers of places with history of, you know, having different comedians roll through uh, those specific uh, comedy clubs. And, you know, when you go to comedy clubs, you see, like, pictures on the wall of, you know, people who were on SNL, like, when they were coming up or something yeah. like that. Or, like, I think in New York, it's, like, the Apollo, right? Like, there's more historical centers and places and venues for the arts. Um, so I think there's just more of a culture and kind of mystique like to it. So I think that probably helps like the, you know, the imagery of the, like the kind of the comedians, comedian scene or comedic scene in the United States. Yeah. I, I always say those, those would be the biggest differences. Okay, cool. Um, talk to me a little bit about jokes, right? Like, so when you're thinking about, how to create a joke, like give me a good anatomy. Like what's, and I feel like the reason why I'm asking this question is because like, even if you're, someone's not going to tell a joke, right? I think there's ways to, you know, create situations of irony, right? So that they can be better communicators, right? Or better storytellers. Uh, So talk to me a little bit about the anatomy of what you think a great joke is. Yeah, I I would say, the, for the most part, it's misdirection. Uh, and I, I know a lot of comedians, like, 
compare that to being like a magician, like you're basically setting up a thing and then pulling that expectation away. Uh, so you always have to have a punchline. That that is the most important part, I would say. Like having the anatomy of basically what we would call the setup. So you would have a thing like I don't know, all eggs around, and then your punchline would basically to just subvert the, the setup. Uh, and you can do that in multiple ways, you know, all eggs around, except if you're a square chicken or something like that. Right, right. <laughs> something stupid. Um, so that's like a, a, the most simple anatomy of it is what you call it, the premise, the setup, and then the, the punchline. The premise is like, what is the idea of the joke? The setup is how you would convey the idea. And then the final part would be at how you would subvert it. That would be the most traditional way. Um, the other ways are a very traditional writing style or any kind of communication style is like the rule of threes. So basically you go one, two, subvert, or you go ridiculous, ridiculous, normal, you know, or more commonly normal, normal, ridiculous. So, you know, I, I hate, I, I really hate it when my girlfriend calls, my mom calls, and my boyfriend calls. Right? <laughs> It'd be like something stupid to basically like subvert the the one two three uh those that would be like probably the second best way to analogize like the anatomy of a joke and i think one of the most important things is the punchline is what should carry the meaning so i think a lot of folks conflate the punchline with the vehicle which is basically the premise and the setup so i, I think that's kind of where a lot of comedians get in hot water their premise and their setup uses a controversial vehicle but then their punchline is perfectly fine. It's just the time to get there to the punchline gets lost and then someone gets stuck in between, in which case then you're like, oh no, please hear, either hear me out or- Oh, you gotta explain. Did you hear me? <laughs> you gotta explain it yeah. or you gotta expand upon the joke. But it's just like, you have to, you have to climb an uphill battle, right? Cause it, the audience is already deflated. And then you have to kind of roll, figure out how to roll that in to something else so that i'm guessing like if the whole thing was you know the the premise like now you have to use the one two three as the premise and then lead that into another you know sort of subversion so it's just like you're just re regrouping that and reframing it again and i can imagine to do that on the spot is very very difficult yeah i mean i, I just told you a, a really shitty joke about square eggs so <laughs> this is the benchmark <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you feel that like though comedians use very convenient truths, right? To help bridge things a little bit. Like you know, you're talking about, for example, like round eggs, square chicken, maybe it's, you know, uh, I don't know, a triangular hen or something like that, or triangular scrambled eggs or something like that, right? Like not that they're all related, but uh, you're trying to find, you know, a pattern that's like, if you expand or exaggerate the definition, it's truth, right? Or if you just like, you know, for example, we are using parts of a chicken and you were also introducing new shapes, right? So it's just like, you just have to find those parallels that sort of match that. And that's the irony like that you can kind of get away with when, let's say if you are struggling with a joke, it's just like, oh, I have these two things in mind. How do I just stay on theme? Yeah. that. That is a lot of what we do. And I just thought about another one that you could say. 
all these eggs around, um, but only if the chicken's thinking inside the box or something. <laughs> That's a farm to table yeah, joke. And, yeah, uh, yeah, no, for, for sure for that. And I rely on that heavily, to be honest. And I, I think a lot of good comedy does, because I think a lot of good comedy does rely on a common understanding. So if if I have to spell everything out to you, <laughs> then it's like half a lecture. <laughs> then you're like, ah, F that. Because <laughs> I've tried to do that before. I, I have tried to do jokes on econ because <laughs> I, I studied econ of undergrad. And I was like, I'm going to make my degree worth it. <laughs> and I went out to open mics and I'd be like, these economic jokes. <laughs> people are like, dude, what? You must <laughs> have really liked the, uh, the speakeasy uh, one from Ronnie Chang because uh, I, I did because he <laughs> i think he mentions like the central li- limit theorem obviously econ joke and i thought it was like wow i never thought i'd hear that in a in a stand-up comedy venue before i laughed so hard when he said that yeah and he was like yo the p-values are too big <laughs> <laughs> that was great that was honestly great uh, and that, that was a double layered one too because he was talking about penises <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious uh, one thing I found out was that uh, Nigel Ung, he was actually a data scientist before he became Uncle Roger. Oh. So it must be, there, there's got to be something about, you know, being Asian and then, you know, being, you know, either something has to do with money, I don't know, like being an accountant, I don't know, or, you know, something with science, right? Just basically whatever your parents told you to be a doctor, lawyer, or, you know, an accountant, Right feel like there's a lot of angst that's being taken away you know from that and that just becomes the the butt of a lot of asian jokes like you know when you know simu was doing all the stock footage stuff he was just like yeah i was actually an accountant so obviously well you know i'm kind of paraphrasing now or just interjecting my own opinion just like yeah he knows how to play an accountant because he was one so if you're in a stock photo it's like (laughs) you know you know what it's like to be you know uh, i mean obviously he's embellishing you know what accountants look like, you know, in a bright, you know, kind of uh, airy sort of settings, because you know that accountants usually, you know, kind of get the corner corner venue because they just look at numbers and spreadsheets all day. And you know when it's yeah. when it's tax season, you know they're stuck in a hole, right, twenty four seven for like, you know, seven days a week. I think yeah, some of the funniest folks I've I've met are like repressed professionals. <laughs> And I, I will, I will like say, yeah. Shout out to that like second city class I was in because they, they were all really funny, and it's like like what you were saying. A lot of them were very educated professionals, and I think there's like a correlation to that, right? It's like the more educated you are, the better you are with language, and I think that does play a part in it. Because th- there was like a journalist in my first class, and she was killer. Cool. And she was just so good with the words. I can imagine just because like she could exaggerate the meanings, right? Or like play, she could play it straight or she could, you know, stretch it out to fit whatever nuance that, you know, she needed. Yeah. Honestly, like if if you're a working professional, don't think that means that you're like a boring person. (laughs) It probably means you're very not boring because you're so repressed. (laughs) I guess, uh, how has comedy... And all these com- you know, these comedy classes are just, you know, your process of being a stand-up comedian. Like, how has that helped you 
uh, in your non-comedic life, right? Whether it's like through relationships, whether it's through work, um, you know, just every part of daily life, like how has that really helped you? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I would say it, it's really helped me in my professional career. And what I've noticed is um, I, I've worked office jobs basically my entire life. And what I found is folks who work office jobs have a very low benchmark for what is funny and entertaining because we're also basically bored. <laughs> we're just in front of a computer all day, even data entry, data analysis. <laughs> like you're doing mind-numbing work for the most part. So <laughs> your your threshold for entertainment while you're doing that is much lower. So I basically try to bring comedy into whenever I do presentations, kind of like what you're. you're uh, co-worker and old roommate had noticed uh, when I introduce myself and try to network at professional events folks appreciate the I, I want to say um, the authenticity that comes with some of the humor I think we've been trained especially in North America to be very professional but I think what a lot of professional professionalism brings is this like veneer of of a facade basically right like this is my best foot this is what i think you would like to see and this is my best business voice and i think it's fine to play the game but at some point everyone's kind of playing that game so if you can be and show a little bit of yourself but in a fun way people really appreciate that i really appreciate that when i go to like professional networking events when someone is able to break the facade of like, hello, I'm here for business, 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 small talk, small talk, small talk, the weather. I'm like, okay, come on. Like this is, this is like basically scripted. I could write like an AI algo to like automate this conversation. So I don't have to have it. So if any time that like you can break out of that script, I'm pleasantly surprised. And I, I found that like other folks have been pleasantly surprised. I think you should definitely come out for a comedy bit in San Francisco. I mean, we're very much a tech hub. Uh, a lot of uh, tech people here. You could get away with some of those jokes. Uh, I think when I was at the <laughs> the Nigel Ung uh, comedy show, I think it was like maybe last week or something like that. He was like, oh man, you're great. All these tech jokes, they'll, they'll work here and nowhere else. And one of them was like, you know, like, <laughs> You like, I think one of his jokes was like, oh, he asked someone, what's your, what's your favorite Excel formula? And someone just said, uh, sum, right? And he was like, oh, sum, that's such a basic bitch Excel formula. Like, and the crowd was just <laughs> laughing. It's like, you would only, you would only like really find that funny if, unless you're actually using it all the time. But to be fair, that is a pretty basic bitch <laughs> formula. <laughs> But it's just so funny. Come that, on, man. That's the middle of Right. But that's so funny that he elevated it in that way, right? Like, because normally you you wouldn't really get a lot of, like, Excel jokes. But by calling it a basic bitch formula, right? Like, he made it sound like it was much more sophisticated, like, trashy sophisticated um, in just a new kind of premise or setting. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I really do. I, I would say other times that it's come in handy has been at weddings. Okay. <laughs> that is like the other biggest value add. If someone's like, hey, man, you got to do a speech at a wedding. 
I, I think we've all sat through wedding speeches that we wish would end. <laughs> like, oh God, please, we get it. You're related. <laughs> like, it's, it's just kind of what the gist of it is. But if you can make it entertaining, I think one of the best uh, wedding speeches I ever heard was from my sister. And she basically had a pun every other sentence <laughs> in her wedding speech. And it went good, like a solid five minutes. So she had like a tight five with it. And I was like, that's good. <laughs> One of my friends, uh, his little brother, one of my friends got married. Uh, he's one of my childhood friends and his little brother didn't prepare a speech. Uh, and his speech was essentially, I think he just framed it as, I learned what not to do for my brother. So he would just say like, oh yeah, you know, my older brother didn't have good grades. I got good grades. And like, oh, my, you know, older brother, he went to, you know, the Caribbean's. I'm trying to go to med school, right? Like, or something like that. <laughs> right. Like, and, and that was like the whole, the whole shtick. Right. So I think what was interesting now that I think about it is that when you're, when you obviously don't have a script, you could just think about like, what is the one theme that I would like to have as a reoccurring thing and just stick with that the entire time. And that's like yeah. your guide. That's your guide rail. Uh, Cause I think a lot of people will just overthink like, Oh God, like I have to come up with like, you know, like what you're saying, like Jimmy Carr comes up with those one-liners every single time. Like that's really, really hard, right? Uh, and so I think that just saying this is going to be the theme. I'm going to have jokes that just center around this theme every single time, whether you know it's like your sister making a pun every you know two sentences, or like my friend's brother who's just like I'm just going to downgrade him, right? Or like you know tear him down <laughs> like as a roast, right? Like which you know happens as a best man's you know sort of wedding. It's not surprising. Um, but yeah, that's something that I thought was, was pretty interesting and funny. Yeah, no, I love that. It's the parameters. Yeah. It's the, parameters. It's the constraints, the constraints, uh, you know, lead to, to the best results. Yeah. The, the pressure makes the diamonds. That's the what pressure, the pressure <laughs> makes the diamond. That is correct. Uh, I kind of want to start to wrap things up a little bit. Cause I know it's pretty late over where you're at in Canada. Um, I do have a lightning round of questions. So First question being, if you could open for one comedian, who would you open for and why? Oh, that is such a good question. I honestly would love to open for Ali Wong because we have the same last name. Okay. I was, you know, <laughs> I was thinking about reasons. it a little bit for, uh, as I was walking back, because I got some uh, a light dinner beforehand. I was like, what questions am I going to ask Andy? I was like, oh, you know, Ali Wong, right? Andy's name, last name is Wong. What if they're like, uh, what if she's just a sister from a similar mister, right? That was my like, <laughs> oh my God. that was my yeah, like one liner joke. Her, her heritage too. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, man. yeah. You can take that. You don't, and, and you don't have to pay for that similar. joke. Just, just take it. Just say that you're a sister, you're a brother from, I don't know, like, or she's a sister from another, from a similar mister. I love that. If I if I ever open for Ali, I'll be like, and this joke is brought to you by Mike. <laughs> <laughs> this is Mike. Uh, yeah. Cool. I, I would love to open for her because her her background too. Um, her family background is Chinese from Vietnam. Yeah, which she is, grew up well, in San Francisco. Is, like a, yeah. So uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of similarities and overlap. Cool, cool. Um, for your comedian, like, okay, do you have a comedian mount rushmore sorry to use an american reference so mount rushmore has four heads um you know on top of a mountain mm. so who would be your mount rushmore of uh your top comedians 
So as of right now, and I'll just say like as stand-up comedians, uh, I really admire um, Taylor Tomlinson. I think she's like the perfect balance between like a very solid uh, set with physicality. Like when she acts, it's really on point. Um, the second one would be James Acaster. He's like a British comedian. And he had he had the audacity to put out a special with four parts an hour each and each has its own theme i was like holy smokes That's impressive. <laughs> the amount of work yeah and each of them are good so i was like dang that he's I, I really like him uh the third one i i want to say ali wong just I, I think she was very groundbreaking i know there are folks that have come before her and folks that have come after her, but i think she for at least for myself really broke that ground of like oh asian stand-up comedians can be a thing uh and and she also did always be my maybe it's a great that's a great show no matter what people say and especially because one it was a lot of they filmed a lot of it in san francisco uh i know they filmed some parts i think i think in toronto as well i think it was vancouver or vancouver yeah 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 yeah. um i identified with that movie a lot because at that time I was someone who was living at home, right? And so it's just like, that's actually a fairly realistic like uh, circumstance, right? Of, you know, especially as, like, cause I grew up in San Francisco. So, you know, rents are really high. I was like, is it worth paying $3,000 just to have freedom? Or I could just live at home, save money, right? Like obviously the more practical, you know, version of me is thinking about that. Uh, and so when, you know, when I saw like Randall Park, uh, you know, his role of just like, oh yeah, he's, you know, just working at home or live, living at home, you know, doing a normal sort of job while, you know, Ali Wong is, you know, being a celebrity chef, or I think that was her profession, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, it kind of reminded me of like, oh, this is like Ali Wong is living like the tech, the tech dream, right? Just like I can go out and have freedom <laughs> and just like, I'm so good that I can come back home. But then it's like, oh, you know, Randall Park, you're just a painter, right? Kind of still doing the same kind of stuff. And that dynamic was so funny because I sort of saw that like where, you know, I know people in high school that have just stayed, you know, in San Francisco, like their entire lives or didn't go off, you know, to uh, outside of the Bay area for college. And then, you know, people come back or you have new transplants, right. That aren't from the Bay area that come in from New York, Vancouver, wherever. Right. Like, and it's like a very different type of world. And the funny thing is like my mom actually, you know, she was asking me about, uh, like dating. She's like, how, like, how can you, can't... <laughs> I was about to ask you yeah. too. <laughs> She's like, how can you, how come you're not finding anyone? And I was just like, and, and some of my friends, like early on, this is my early twenties. Like my coworkers, like, how do you date when you live at home? It's like, I don't, <laughs> right. Like it, it took a very specific type of like person to understand what it's like to live at home and to be okay with it. Uh, and I was talking to one of my yes. other friends, like two, who she was actually uh, funny thing. She was actually my junior prom date, but she was also living at home. We caught up one time and I was telling her how like, Oh man, like you're kind of lucky to be a girl. Cause there's like, there's so there's no social expectation for you to bring the guy home. Right. It's always like the guy is supposed to host. <laughs> yes. Right. And like have that freedom and you can escape. But like, so funny thing is like my uh, family house, it's like, three bedrooms, one bathroom, we're all on the same floor. And like my room is next to my parents' room. 
So it's like, yeah, there's no, like, people are like, <laughs> why don't you just sneak in, right? Like, why don't you sneak, one, it's on the second floor. My parents have a dog. So the moment that anyone enters in, the dog's in a park, <laughs> right? And there's no, there's not that. Almost strategically. Yeah. There's no, like, American, that's, it's not like that whole, like, American dream scenario where it's just like, oh, you open the door, like, the window, climb up the ladder, right? Like, come in, sneak in, sneak out. Like, there's none of that stuff. And the funny thing is, like, yeah. I think also my sister set a bad precedent because one time when, you know, she was in college, uh, she brought a guy over and she didn't tell my parents that uh, (laughs) she didn't tell my parents that they were dating. Right. And I was asking my sister, I was like, are you going to tell mom and dad that they're dating? And she's like, I'll get to it eventually. But she never did until like, uh, so basically what she said is like, oh, my friend's staying over, you know, for winter break. Um, and then that's the part where like they found out because eventually like they were sleeping together in the same bed. Right. And they tried to sneak it through, but like my parents, right. Like my dad saw them. So like, basically he tried to like, he had to go talk to them. Right. They're walking, we were walking the dog and he was talking, he was giving, you know, the Asian dad interrogation, uh, (laughs) to the guy, right. Saying like, Hey, you know, make sure you don't do that. But also asking like, you know, what do you do? What do your parents do? Right? Like, kind of stuff like that. What are your aspirations? Right, aspirations, <laughs> like that whole thing. Um, so they didn't necessarily sleep in the same bedroom, but they slept on the couch on separate couches, like, <laughs> to the side of each other or something like that. Uh, so that is sort of what set the precedent of like, yeah, I'm not going to bring or sneak any girl home, right? Uh, one, just because like my sister was the guinea pig in that situation. And I saw <laughs> how my parents reacted to that. So even though that was in college, uh, after college, you know, when, when Asian parents is still fear in your mind, right? Like, you know, you know what the limitations are of how far you should go to, 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 to test it. I would say that that sometimes is a shitty part about being a younger sibling, because if the older one sets a bad precedent, then you can't do that thing. Yeah, but my that's my younger sister, so she set the bad precedent. Like, that was a younger yeah, yeah. sister. I, oh shit. Yeah, so it's just like, oh, she set the precedent of what definitely I'm not doing that anytime soon while I'm living at home, right? Because, you know, in my <laughs> mind, I have the fear of like, oh, what if my parents like, what are they gonna think about, right? Like. They'd probably just scream or yell or just be like, like, oh, be surprised. And that would be super embarrassing for whoever I'm dating, right? Like, it's just like your parents walk in. It's like you're a teen. Yeah. It's like you're a teen, right, again. And it's just like, no one wants to be in that position. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a really good point. But I, I love how you put it, though. It's like, at some point, you're kind of okay with it because... Because it's so, it, it's such a practical thing to do, and I think at some point you become friends with your parents. Because that's what happened to me. I, I moved up very late. Yeah, I mean that's what happened. Like, so that's what happened to me. Like my mom. Okay, so my mom is. Well, I always call her. She's like the oldest millennial. Like, uh, because. <laughs> okay, so my mom. My mom has like a his like. Uh, she didn't grow up necessarily with a lot of things. Like, so for some context, like, my family, they were born in San Francisco. Uh, there, my grandparents immigrated here in the 1930s, maybe, I don't know what kind of Asian American history they teach in Canada, but in the United States, right? Like there's Ellis Island and there's Angel Island. So that's where my grandparents like went through, which was Angel Island on the, you know, uh, West coast. Mm. So my parents were born here. 
Um, and they, I feel like what they went through is very similar to what a lot of second generation Asian immigrants are going through right now, whether it's like your parents can't really speak right English you know, very well. Maybe they live in their own kind of ethnic enclaves. And so what my parents wanted was, you know, a nice suburban house, Brady Bunch life for me and my sister to do a lot of sports. Um, and so that's the kind of like experience that that's like kind of my sort of like Asian American experience. And so now my mom actually, you know, has money to do things like being able to go ice skating or going to basically go out anywhere outside of Chinatown. Right. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes it would be like, she'd come into my room and say like, Hey Mike, do you want to go on this hike? I would, Kind of sometimes I'd be like, uh, not really, right? Like, I don't really feel like it. And she'd be like, oh, you know, your dad, he doesn't like hiking. And so she would have this like very <laughs> disappointed look on her face. And I was like, I have to make this calculation. All right, I don't pay any rent at home, but do I want <laughs> a really sour mom for the rest of the day? And is this my like filial duty? to basically hang out with my mom and go hiking and make her happy just so that I can reset the counter for when, you know, she doesn't blow up again. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I feel that so much. Yes. It's, it's what I call the emotional. Risk. <laughs> the funny thing is, uh, so funny thing is my dad, he actually, uh, I think it was like for mother's day or for her birthday. Uh, this is right before the pandemic hit. He had bought her, like uh, her, my sister and I, like uh, tickets to the Warriors game, um, and they were playing against the the Lakers. And so this is when LeBron James. You know, this is the first time I think LeBron James was coming to Chase Center, the the new stadium. And you know, I asked my dad how it much. It was a big game. It was a big game. Yeah, they they had just the the war the Golden State Warriors had just acquired Andrew Wiggins maybe like a few days before, so we we're you know seeing him in person stuff like that. Uh, I asked my dad, you know, how much the the seats were. He was like, oh, it was seven hundred to a thousand dollars a seat. I'm like, wait, why did you pay so much? Right, like you know that mom wow. would have been uh, one seat. Yeah, one seat. That was per right, and oh. there's four of us. Uh, I'm like, why did you pay so much for it? It's like, well. I think this counts for her birthday and for Mother's Day, so I should be safe for the rest <laughs> of the year. And I was like, that was his logic. I was like, you kind of went overboard on this. Even my mom was like, God, I didn't think you would pay so much for this. Like, you didn't have to, but it's like, it's so interesting to think how my parent, or especially like my dad, thinks about things, right? Or even my mom, how she thinks about things. It's, uh, it's like my dad is thinking very much like, how can I get her off my case? And you know, I don't have to. <laughs> I don't have to remember to do things for her later on because I just banked it all on this one thing for the year. So she should just be grateful. For him, it's an investment. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And I, I'm glad to see hear you got to see that game. That, that sounds like an awesome time. Yeah, it was a really good time. Um, but yeah, with me and my mom, uh, you know, she likes to do a lot of millennial things. She's like she likes to go to all the fancy restaurants. She is someone who uh, social media wise, uh, is very savvy. So the problem oh. I think that I had growing up was that my parents like, okay, so imagine your parents knew how to use the internet and knew how, and were also savvy with computers. So, you mm. know, stuff that like, oh, like if your parents ask like, why do you need this new computer? It's like, well, I need to 
communicate, you know, with my friends, right? I need it for school. They're like, my dad's like, yeah, that graphic card is, you know, way too powerful. Like you just need this basic bitch one, right? Like, you know, something that's not <laughs> as powerful. So, you know, when you're a kid, right? Like you maybe want to play StarCraft or you want to play Counter-Strike. You want, that's how you want to communicate with your friends. So every time playing StarCraft or Warcraft, like my friends would be like, you're lagging. Why didn't you attack? Right. Why didn't you do this? It's like, I'm trying, but I just literally see like all the graphics, like chugging along and like, uh, like my dad, he the frame rate's too low. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or my internet also sucked too. So, uh, I guess given that this whole theme is on comedy, uh, I used to, I also had really crappy cell phone service. Cause I live in the Hills, like the Hills as in like, um, kind of in a more naturey area within San Francisco where there's not a lot of reception. Uh, so, you know, I had cell phone, you know, I'm scared you're going to say the hills have eyes hills. No, they don't have eyes. They have, they might have coyote eyes from here, you know, from, you know, from time to time, <laughs> but uh, cell phone wise, I had no reception. And so every time when I was in high school, I would have to give out two numbers, give out my cell phone number, give out my home phone number. And I was just like, oh, I hate having to give out my oh, home phone number because you know that yeah. like Asian parents, they're going to gatekeep that, that you know, back, back when we had landlines, right? And, you know, Wi-Fi on yeah. your phone wasn't a thing, right? They're going to gatekeep that that phone line and be the first ones to be like, hello, who is this, right? Like, and they'd be like, oh, you know, especially if it's a girl, it's like, oh, I don't know, Donna or hey, you know, uh, like Susie, right? Like okay, I'll go get, you know, Michael for you, right? And then you have to stand by, right? Like the phone, right? <laughs> yeah. And the phone is not like in your room, right? It's in the middle of the kitchen in the common area, oh, yeah. right? So it's just like, yeah, we talk about either homework and like, you know, after that, it's not like you could talk about anything else. So it was kind of like, it really sucked. So imagine now if I'm interested in a girl, right? Like, I can't have those conversations, right? Because it's like in the middle of the kitchen and, you know, maybe my mom <laughs> or dad are like watching, uh, you know, TV or something. Or you like could that. and they'll judge you. <laughs> yeah. It'll just be look, they'll be looking from the side, right? Like, you know, it's not like, you know, the parents have, the parents have eyes and ears, right? Like they can, <laughs> they can listen. Um, so what would happen oftentimes is like, I would try to call from my cell phone, right? But or someone would call me and it would go straight to voicemail. And sometimes like, you know, I would end up calling too much, right? Especially let's say if there was a girl I liked, I would end up calling too much because I Aww. wouldn't know whether or not my cell phone call had actually gone through, right? Because you know, like if you, <laughs> you lose reception, then it just goes to voicemail. So it's just like, oh, I'll just try again. But little did I know that maybe some of them went through and they just racked up a bunch of calls. So it might have made, probably made people look like, oh, this guy's definitely 100%, you know, a creeper or just like, God, this guy's so desperate. Look at all his phone calls. It's just like, well, I just didn't know, like, if it if it went through, right? Like, you know, from my cell phone. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That's, I'm sorry you had to go through that, but that's amazing. <laughs> It's it's on theme for this uh you know this particular episode since we're talking about uh comedy. Uh another thing too is that my my dad knew how to block um uh, IPs. So if we were oh. we had we were on AIM, right? Like he would be like, Oh, you got bad grades, all right, we're gonna block AIM from this time to this time. So that was a huge pain in the butt, because like one, I'm already naturally like landlocked or like, you know, cell phone receptions cut off, right? Like 
you know, he knows like, uh, I'm always have this fear of like, oh, is my dad watching my conversations, right? Like, because he knows how to like block my IP when I'm on, you know, AOL instant messenger, stuff like that. Um, my mom knew how to text when we all got a phone. She also had AOL instant messenger as well, which when I went to college, uh, it's a double-edged sword, right? Don't have to stay on long phone conversations, but it just means that she could just message you anytime, like for better or for worse. And expects you to message back. And mess yeah. yeah, message you back in, in real time kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I think my mom is probably one of the most like tech savvy moms that I can think of in terms of like just staying on top of like the trends. She was also on Snapchat for a short period of time. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. She know her stuff. Part of, part of it was because my sister was going to like travel around the world, like, or do like, you know, an extended break after college. My mom was like, you know, how am I going to stay like in touch with you kind of thing? It's like, oh, I don't know, just Facebook messenger me or something like that. Uh, and then eventually my sister caved in because she, I think she got tired of like filtering out snaps, right. And stuff like that. Because uh, my mom was also on snap. She's like, okay. Just, just, just give my mom, you know, the Snapchat like details and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, like me and my sister, we've always grown up with like our mom, uh, always having some sort of oversight. So even like I'm on Twitter, my mom has Twitter. She never uses it, but she's like, Hey, I saw that you tweeted something. It's like, well, I'm not, I already know. <laughs> I already it's know. Like it's third level of like, yeah. yeah. Or like Facebook, right. One time I made a post about on Facebook. I was like, ah, oh, you know, like. You know how people, you know how like on Facebook, people could used to complain about, you know, especially like in college, people would just complain, you know, about their parents or something like that, just because you know that they weren't friends with them. But then my mom, like, she like requested, add, you know, requested <laughs> to be added friends with us. It's not like we could ignore it if we went home. It's just like, I sent you this request. It's just like, oh, sorry, I didn't get it. Right. Like, because you know that you're going to face the consequences later, like, if you don't. And this is the problem sometimes with having parents that are so savvy with technology. Uh, so that's a trade-off. You're not the IT person, right. but now they track all your shit. Exactly. <laughs> right. Like one time I made this, I must have made a post like, you know, I, was, I think I was frustrated at my mom and I posted something and she was like, my mom was being really salty about it. She's like, see how many people didn't <laughs> like your post. Right. Like, you know, like look at those reactions, right. Like not so great. Huh. Right. Like, and you know, these are things that most, I feel like most Asians will not have to deal with, like this generation of Asians will have to deal with. But, uh, I do think that later on in life, right. Like, especially like, I think as a lot more second generation Asians, like start to have kids, like they're going to know all the tricks mm -hmm. of the trade, right. Like, because now everyone's digitally savvy. And so it's less like, yeah, there's always going to be a place for whatever TikTok or Snapchat, but you can bet that your parents are probably going to, you know, start saying like, Hey, we'll be on those messenger channels too. Right. Like for the most part, like they're going to know because, you know, they were once, or we were once kids that, you know, whose parents didn't have access and we know how to get, you know, we know how to get away with it. But I'll say from my experience, like I recognize it's like, all right, maybe this is an exaggeration, but it's almost like I was living under like, uh, Communist Party China, right? Where it's just like you have to carefully craft your messages, right? And there's only certain channels that you can, you know, talk shit about your parents, right? But like, you know, you have to be yeah. very specific about when you do it and what you post, right? Because you never know when your parents will be watching and seeing what you're saying. 
<laughs> and how you do it. You got to word it so you have an exit. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's anyways, I know I stole the spotlight from you at least, you know, for, uh, that specific, uh, like question. Um, but that's like, I love doing that, but that's like, that's my general upbringing is just like my, my mom and my parent or my dad, they're, well, especially more my mom. She's definitely a millennial. Like she's like, I want to go to these shows, right? She has a, a doggy Instagram account, like with 2000 followers, oh. like, and no, no, no paid posts whatsoever. It's all organic. And like her oh, Instagram, that's impressive. her Instagram game is way better than mine. Like the stuff that she writes <laughs> for a dog is like, oh, have a possum day, right? It's like, oh, it's St. Patty's Day. And she'll do all the filters and stuff like that. The stickers. She posts in puns? She oh, posted, man. Yeah, you gotta. <laughs> she posts in puns, but she posts in dog puns specifically for, that, for the that's dog amazing you, yeah you gotta up your game that's what, I'm <laughs> what you're saying is i have to get a dog and also meet her at that level but the funny thing is too <laughs> yeah. she was saying uh she was starting to get fatigue right of uh oh. social media so like with the oh. dog account right like because every time she'd post something she get all these comments and responses uh about like oh how is you know max doing how is mochi doing basically they're like a yellow lab uh in a english lab one passed away which was max um so mochi is like the main dog on the count but my mom was like yeah sometimes they would send me gifts right like uh i think she had given the, like strangers like her like address uh to send like her work address at the time for like you know gifts that a lot of the other doggy moms wanted to send and so she would get gifts from other dogs, uh, parents' accounts and stuff like that. And so she felt like this indebtedness, like, oh, shoot, like, do I need to get them something, right? Like, oh, or like, yeah. you know, uh, if someone responds back, right, do I need to respond to them back in the comments? And like, what if you have like a crap ton of comments? Like, if you don't respond, if you only respond to one, you feel like you need to respond to and all the of them. other ones feel like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no. So my mom stopped posting as much uh, on the doggy account just because she was like, she, they know, right? Like, you know, the the algorithm has eyes, right? In terms of like when she posts <laughs> something again, she's like, oh, you're back. Everything's okay. You know, like, you know, it's like you're alive, right? Versus like if you don't post for a while, it's like, we haven't heard from you in a while. Hopefully everything's okay. Like, you know, like that's how Aww. that community of other dog moms or dog accounts right it's a it's a different type of you know niche and subculture uh, so these are things that like my mom goes through right now and these are very millennial almost gen yeah. z oriented things like managing social media accounts or you know sometimes she'll say uh she'll she'll talk to me about like uh drama like among like the friends group and stuff <laughs> like that and it'll be yes. like it'll it'll all involve social media it's like this person posts way too much right this person you know, uh, you know, doesn't know how to use Facebook etiquette, ah. right? Like, you know, they're posting too ah, many the petty pictures. high school Java. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but this is, uh, these are like 60 year old women, right? Like, uh, talking about, uh, drama, right. And it's like, so funny. It was just like this person said on Facebook X, Y, Z, or this person, you know, said this or posted this and it's, it's so funny and ironic, like at the same time, also draining a little bit too. It's just like, these are not normal. Con well, I wouldn't say normal. These are kind of the conversations that I would hear all the time. So that's why 
I usually refer to my mom as like she was my roommate, but also it was like having a millennial <laughs> roommate because all the things that she does, um, you know, are very so up to date in terms of like the culture. Yeah. Uh, and, and people sometimes are like, oh, you must be really lucky. And sometimes I am. Right. And I am fortunate to have, you know, a mom that doesn't necessarily have any sort of language barriers. Like my, my mom speaks English like fluently. Obviously, I can't speak any Chinese because of that. Uh, and so <laughs> it has its pros and cons. Um, so that's how I kind of think about, you know, my, my relationship with my parents is very much of roommates. And they're basically just big millennials for the most part. Yeah. It sounds like I got a really cool mom who enjoyed my comedy shows. So if I'm ever, I think so. If I'm ever in LA, in San Francisco, I'm gonna hit you. All up. right, sounds good. I'll I'll try to make sure I bring my mom. Uh, just don't roast me. <laughs> just don't roast me too hard. Otherwise, you know your mom. I roasted your mom apparently. <laughs> <laughs> she she gave apparently. <laughs> well, I just don't want that. She can post about I, it on her dog account. I know. <laughs> I just don't want that situation, you know, where you're saying when you brought your mom, right? Just like, don't mention me in the crowd because that's basically <laughs> going to be like, uh, that's going to be me, right? I'm going to go exactly yep. what you went through. Hey, here's the thing. It's not my mom. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My last and final question is, uh, who could you bring on to the realistically bring on to this pod that you could, uh, introduce me to and would be a good fit for it? Oh, that is such a good question. Someone who I think has a bunch of hidden talents and, and is, and has such an interesting life. I think is one of my friends who I also do a podcast with, I do a podcast about narrative video games. It's like video games are very like story heavy and story driven. Um, and his name is, uh, Gwyn Rogers. And he is one of the most interesting individuals I know. He goes sailing. He does audio tech. He, uh, loves board games. He is a mixologist. So many things going on with this guy. A man of many talents. and And to top it off. Yeah. And to top it off, he's a genuinely good person. Which is so hard to find, right? Usually, when you feel like, "Oh, this guy goes sailing," you're like, "Oh, it's a douche, bro." <laughs> right? Got it. Like a preppy but one. He's one yeah, like a preppy douche, bro. But no, he's one of the most down to earth people I know. Such an interesting fellow. I'd highly recommend having him on. Awesome, awesome. We'll have to follow up with you later. And. Lastly, where can people find you? How can they follow your your comedy journey and whatnot? Yes. So uh, the show I produce is called Stand Up and Sit Down Comedy. We are on Instagram and Facebook at Stand Up and Sit Down Comedy, one word. Uh, and that kind of happened through the pandemic while we were doing stand up while we were sitting down through Zoom comedy. And now we do stand up while the audience sits down. So we've evolved. And uh, if you want to follow that uh, narrative uh, video game podcast I do is called at watch play cry on Spotify and wherever fine podcasts find you. And you can follow me on my personal Instagram at Andy Wong 52 because zero to 51 were taken. <laughs> <laughs> you I'm surprised you didn't choose, you know, 88, like Andy Wong 88 would have made your parents very I happy. You can stuck to it. You technically <laughs> yes. can still change it if you really want to. Uh, I like 52. <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> okay. 
Yeah. All right. Uh, and, and where can they find you, Mike? So basically, people can find me at the MJL podcast. Uh, I think that's my Twitter handle, Instagram, uh, etc. Uh, those are the kind of the main ones that I'm on. Uh, you can also find me on, you know, wherever you find podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, etc. Uh, main, my main Twitter account that I use just on a personal one is uh, Mike Justly. Uh, that's kind of where I just post kind of everyday stuff. The the MGL one is basically just to post like the more official stuff. It's just more for distribution, not necessarily for responding. Um, but yeah, that's where people can find me. And also, you can subscribe to this YouTube channel. Um, as well, which is the the MGL podcast. Uh, Andy, I want to thank you for coming on to the pod. It's been uh, really great having you. I learned a lot about comedy as well as just general storytelling overall and uh, wish you the best in your endeavors. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. It was fun. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs>